Well, hello there, and welcome to Pick 6 Movies. Have you lost weight? Because you look fantastic. Oh, I know, you're all dressed up for the finale of Season 9, cleverly titled Hail to the King, Baby, where we're featuring six movies all inspired by the writings of the one and only Mr. Stephen King. Who's that with you? Was it someone new to the podcast? I'm so sorry. Let me explain what we do here and who I am. See, each season we select six movies that are all related to a single theme and then on each episode we explore the people in front of and behind the camera and try to make sense out of how and why each movie was made. Then on top of that, you get a detailed review of the entire movie from me, Chad Cooper, and one of the funniest and most interesting guys I know, Mr. Bo Ransdell. This episode features Firestarter, starring Drew Barrymore, David Keith, George C. Scott, among many other Emmy and Academy Award-winning actors and actresses. Now, nobody won any awards for Firestarter, but that's not their fault. That's the fault of the uppity cinema snobs who look down their noses at movies featuring a little girl who can melt live humans until they're dead with just her mind. You didn't get that kind of a storyline in terms of endearment. Best picture? Yeah, right. Well, let's say we light a match and get rid of the stink of those elitist film critics and get your favorite lowbrow movie reviewer and mine, Mr. Bo Ransdell, in here to introduce this season's finale, Firestarter. Bo, take it away. A young girl besieged by powerful forces, with only her innate talent to save her and get her past the chaos to something resembling a normal life. That is the dual story of Charlene Charlie McGee and the actress who played her, Drew Barrymore. Here on Pick 6 Movies, we like to spin a yarn, and there are few better stories in the pantheon of Hollywood than that of Drew Barrymore. She was born to be an actor, really. Let's look at some of her relatives, shall we? There's the immediate family, Father John Barrymore, and Mother Jade. Jade was a civilian, but John Barrymore was an actor, and starred in movies like War of the Zombies and Invasion 1700. John Barrymore, who we'll call John Drew Barrymore for the sake of clarification, was a weird guy. And by weird, I mean maybe a touch crazy, and not in the fun way where you talk to invisible mice that live in your eyeballs. No, he was an angry guy. Jade was his second marriage, the first broken up by John's anger and abusive outbursts. His family, a bunch of actors too, tried to keep him from the life of an artist. His mother even sent him away to private school to keep him from being another vagabond actor, but he was determined. Despite that determination, and being cast in several stage productions, John's wild tendencies made him miss a few openings, a scandal in the prestigious Barrymore clan of actors. John Barrymore left home when Drew Barrymore was a child, only nine years old, and his sporadic police encounters over drugs and his fading career led him to doing what all grade-A wackos do. He went to the woods, where he lived out his life in a cabin like the Unabomber. He and Drew were never very close, and he died in 2004. Now, Drew's grandparents were also actors, John Barrymore, who, unlike his son, never wanted to go into acting, 
was lured onto the stage way back in 1900 when he and his father, and later his sister, appeared on stage together. The acting bug bit him, and John Barrymore, the older one, would go on to perform in film versions of Richard III and Hamlet. His performance in Hamlet led critics to call him no less than the greatest living American tragedian. He also had a fairly serious alcohol problem beginning at the age of 14, which is something to note for later. His drinking and philandering became the stuff of tabloid legend. By the time he died, John Barrymore, the old one, was a bit of a joke, often given only roles where he played aging alcoholics, seeing as how he had some experience with the subject. There were bankruptcies and four different marriages, and it was a real shame, especially considering how revered he was at the height of his fame. One of his wives, and John Drew Barrymore's mother, Dolores Costello, was also an actress. She was a big deal in the silent era, but her career ran out of steam and she ended up managing an avocado farm. Part of her career ending could be attributed to her complexion, which had been ruined by the effects of old-style makeup in her silent movie years. Other actors in Drew Barrymore's lineage include her great-grandfather, another John Barrymore, and his wife, Louisa Lane Drew, both of them actors. She is the niece of Diana Barrymore, an actress, grandniece of Lionel Barrymore, who played mean old Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life, and was also grandniece of actors Ethel Barrymore and Helen Costello. She is the great-grandniece of John Drew Jr., who was a fancy pants on Broadway around the turn of the century, along with being the great-grandniece of Sidney Drew, who was an actor, writer, and director for silent films. Oh, and not blood but noteworthy, she is the goddaughter of model and actress Sophie Loren and Anna Strasberg, the wife of the guy who literally wrote the book on acting, Lee Strasberg. And also, her godfather is Steven Spielberg. Ugh, that is a hell of an Ancestry.com. And not just the acting. More than a natural ability to pretend came along with the Barrymore name. She was only 11 months old when she landed her first commercial, a dog food ad. At the age of five, she appeared in Altered States, which is a very good movie about psychedelic drugs and the cauldron of creation, and you just have to see it. Then she got the role of a lifetime with Godfather Spielberg's E.T. Spielberg adored Drew Barrymore and thought she brought an imagination to the role, largely because she led with a made-up story about the punk band she was in. The movie was a success. I mean, it was E.T. Everyone saw it. And Drew Barrymore got a Young Artist Award for Best Supporting Actress. Her next movie would be Firestar, which we'll get to in just a bit. The same year, she appeared in Irreconcilable Differences, which involves a young girl divorcing her parents, and then she showed up in Cat's Eye, another Stephen King adaptation. Her mother Jade, at around this time, started taking young Drew to nightclubs, notably Studio 54. Drew was a star, after all, and fame gets you anywhere, even into a cocaine-fueled nightclub that was like Stefan's list of mid-80s debauchery. And Drew liked booze, even at a young age. Just like some of the great actors in her family, Drew Barrymore possessed the talent of her namesakes and their propensity for self-destruction. At the age of 13, Drew wanted to throw her mother out of the house and became violent when she was not allowed to do so. This event was largely fueled by booze. She went into rehab and got out to do a movie called Far From Home, but the movie was a flop and Drew was kind of in rough shape. The role started to dry up as Drew Barrymore became a fixture in the club scene of Hollywood. 
famous as much for partying and wild nights as she was the role she took in movies. Her father was out of the picture, her mother was taking her to clubs for Christ's sake, even Drew knew the turmoil of her home life was unusual. At 17, she appeared with her then-husband, Jamie Walters, in the All Together for a cover of Interview Magazine. At 19, she showed up in Playboy. She had traded acting for modeling and even flashed her boobs to David Letterman during a talk show appearance. Her behavior was so audacious, Steven Spielberg, upon learning of her Playboy shoot, sent her a quilt on her 20th birthday with a note that read, Cover yourself up. She married and divorced again, and it looked like Barrymore would follow in the footsteps of her ancestors. A brief streak of talent that flitted across the Hollywood sky and faded out amid drugs and alcohol. It happened to her father. It happened to her grandfather. But then something else happened. Drew Barrymore, against all odds, started to get her shit together. She left behind the wild partying and the erotic thrillers of the early 90s from Poison Ivy to Doppelganger and began picking better roles for herself. 1995 is considered the big turning point. That was the year Barrymore appeared in Boys on the Side. She plays a pregnant girl who is trying to slip the clutches of her abusive boyfriend. It didn't make a ton of money, but it was critically well-reviewed and found some life on home video. In 1996, she announced her return to big movies in a killer way, <laughs> with her cameo in Wes Craven's Scream, in which Barrymore confronts a murderer on the phone. Her death in the early moments of the movie was shocking, and Drew Barrymore was back in the forefront of Hollywood's list of female talent. In 1998, she starred with Adam Sandler in The Wedding Singer, an enormous hit for both of them. She followed this up with a slew of romantic comedies and comedic roles. Also in 1995, same year as Boys on the Side, Drew Barrymore and partner Nancy Juvonen founded Flower Films, their own production company. Barrymore would go on to produce the comedy she starred in, Never Been Kissed, and then Charlie's Angels, and even help finance the cool sci-fi movie Donnie Darko. In the 20 years since, Barrymore's life has been a good one. Most recently, she was the executive producer and star of the Netflix series Santa Clarita Diet, a zombie comedy with her as a mom with a surprising taste for flesh. While she may not be the megastar she was in the 80s or even the late 90s, Barrymore is a working actor in charge of her own destiny. It's a nice ending to a tumultuous story, and she is one of those rare statistical anomalies that is able to pull up on the stick before the expected Hollywood crash can happen. Good for her. And she got a little taste of this in the summer of 1983 when she and her mother traveled to North Carolina for the filming of Firestarter. The fact that a film version of Firestarter was being made wasn't news. King's work, as you've seen on this very season, was being mined for the big screen. Firestarter was simply the latest in the line. Following Carrie and The Shining and Creepshow and Cujo and The Dead Zone and Christine, all before producers got around a Firestarter. And most of those movies I just named are pretty good. This goes a long way toward explaining the cast assembled for Firestarter. Not only did you have Drew Barrymore, easily the biggest child star in the world at that point, but you had George C. Scott as one of the villains. George C. Scott! Now, some of you younglings may not know much about the venerable character actor, but he was the gruffest barrel-chested actor to come down the pipe since Brian Dennehy. He won an Oscar for playing General Patton, and starred in the excellent ghost story The Changeling. He even played Scrooge in my favorite version of the Dickens classic. Drew Barrymore even credits him with one of the best pieces of advice she ever received on acting. Drew, he said, just forget about the camera. 
and do your job. Martin Sheen played the other heavy, and he's more than just Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez's dad. Wait, if they're both his kids, did Emilio Estevez get married? Hey, Trevor, send a wedding gift to Emilio Estevez. Yeah, you can put your name on it. Barrymore's dad is played by David Keith, who got big on the back of his performance in An Officer and a Gentleman. He's gone on to do a lot of work in both television and film right up until this year. On a side note, he hails from Knoxville, Tennessee, down the road a piece for me, and is the cousin of the guy who does play-by-play for the Tennessee Titans, Mike Keith. David Keith even goes to all the University of Tennessee football games he can, and has done some outstanding work for an organization called Protect, a national group created to fight child predation and molestation. He seems like a genuinely good guy, and is a good actor too. There's a cameo from Louise Fletcher and Art Carney as the old couple, the Manders. Art Carney is a legend, a comedic legend at least. He's maybe best known as the sidekick on Jackie Gleason's The Honeymooners, but he was everywhere in the 70s and 80s. And the older he got, the better it seemed. In movies that emphasized his age, like Harry and Tonto, in which he and a cat go across the country in a Winnebago and going in style with him and George Burns stealing a bunch of shit, They were some of his best work. His natural performance and undeniable charisma is all over Firestarter 2, so if you haven't seen it, you're in for a treat. Louise Fletcher was famous for playing the sour-faced Nurse Ratched in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And 136 screen credits later, she's still playing scary old ladies. Now, this was all directed by Mark L. Lester, who has a long tradition of B-movies and genre films. He directed movies like Truck Stop Women and Roller Boogie, and Class of 1984, all before he did Firestarter. He would later direct Brandon Lee in Showdown in Little Tokyo, and Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando, but his style of film has waned in popularity. He's still making movies and has one coming out in 2020, a preview as of the time of this recording. That movie is called Anomalous, The Birth, probably an animal attack movie, like his other movie, Pterodactyl. You know, here's something interesting about the director of Firestarter, John Carpenter was originally slated to direct this movie with a script written by Bill Lancaster, who also wrote John Carpenter's The Thing, and Bill Lancaster's dad, Burt Lancaster, who you may remember as the old doctor from Field of Dreams, among a billion other movies, was going to be Hollister, the part that would later go to Martin Sheen. Oh, right, Martin Sheen. Trevor, did you send the gift to Emilio? And you got the dishes, right? Yeah. He deserves them. Where was I? Oh yeah, so John Carpenter's The Thing came out and everyone hated it and it didn't make any money. So John Carpenter and his Stephen King approved script both got bounced right off the project. Now when the movie came out, it was largely seen as a disappointment. It only made about $17 million, which wasn't great even in 1984 money. Worse, critics panned this movie as being just another King adaptation Which leads me to believe they were high on the fumes of the Dead Zone and Christine. Official Pick 6 critic and guy I most once stuffed in my basement, Roger Ebert, said, The most astonishing thing about Firestarter was how boring it is. In 2012, King himself described the movie as, quote, Flavorless, like cafeteria mashed potatoes. But perhaps the reception at the time is less important than the girl at the center of the film, who, for one summer, got to be a little girl. Because the film was shot in North Carolina, her mother couldn't take Barrymore to Studio 54 or on a cocaine water slide or whatever they do in Hollywood. Barrymore worked 
She slept, she did some schooling. Her stand-in, a girl her age named Jennifer Ward, well, Drew and that girl became best friends for a while. Drew was drawn to her both for her normalcy and the fact that Jennifer had a good home with parents who were still together. In fact, for a while, Drew Barrymore went to live with Jennifer Ward just to get away from the crazy world waiting for her on the West Coast. But maybe my favorite moment comes from a story Barrymore told about Stephen King, who was on the set a lot. In between takes, Stephen King and Drew Barrymore would sit and they would talk. They would talk for hours, she said. Not about the movie or his book, but about music, television shows they liked, and even who made the best hamburgers. It's a nice image. King in the throes of his addictions, Barrymore just at the beginnings of her issues, but two survivors who made it through the bad years and who made themselves something better, something befitting the name Barrymore and befitting the title of the most popular novelist in America. Just two people having a laugh about burgers on a warm North Carolina evening. But what of the movie itself? Is it really as flavorless as cafeteria mashed potatoes? Is a child ever visibly drunk in this movie? And how in the hell did George C. Scott get cast as a Native American named Rainbird? For this and more, let's get Chad in here and hit the burners. Ladies and gentlemen, Charlene's and Charlie's, it's 1984's Firestarter. Hey there, everyone. Welcome to Pick 6 Movies. I am Bo Ranstall. With me, as always, is the uh, the lovely, the talented, uh, the the sexually charged Chad Cooper. Flame on! That's all right. Wait. Yeah. Shit. I th- Gosh, Don, Don. <laughs> that always feels like something that Harvey, Harvey Firestein should shout. Like, that should be his battle cry. <laughs> Flame on! <laughs> So the impression start early the, this episode, Chad. So this is uh, the the finale of of season nine, uh, "Hail to the King, Baby," all about the works of Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're ending on it. It might seem like kind of an odd choice. I uh, don't think so. Well, n- not you and I, but to oh. listeners, to to John <laughs> John Q podcast, right? Is looking at this finale. They're like, this is the big slam bang fireworks finale. Mm-hmm. of pick six movies season nine and it's Firestarter. no it's Firestarter. yeah it's <laughs> look we are going to explain to you how this movie is secretly rad and and also kind of hilarious but anyway we'll get into it all i but Bo, i know what you, I, look you're dancing around the real issue here and it's that i don't like stranger things okay uh-huh. because it's derivative of so many other movies and tv shows but i want to say specifically this movie is the lifeblood of stranger things yeah yeah it's got the tangerine dream it's got that it's got the telekinetic pyrokinetic yeah you're right extra kinetic powers you got nosebleeds we're in the 80s the the everything about it just feels like 
come on, Eleven, we got to get you out of here. I don't like nostalgia as a cornerstone to really anything. As we've noted in yeah. other episodes of the show, it feels like a cheat. I did like the Jason Siegel, Amy Adams pairing in The Muppets, mm-hmm. which was totally nostalgia based. But that gets a pass because it's being nostalgic about its own source material. And I love the Muppets. I thought that Rocky Balboa, the sixth and final official Rocky movie was very nostalgic in that way. And Mm -hmm. I enjoyed that movie for the same reason, but for the most part, any creative piece of work that is just reliant on saying, you know, Hey, remember this thing from the past? Well, we remember it too. Wink, wink. It it does not resonate with me at all. And that's, that's the last I'm going to say about stranger things. I promise. But if you've never seen Firestarter and you love Stranger Things, you should watch Firestarter because it's, you know, the genesis point of so much of that thing that you love that I hate. (laughs) Yeah, I I think that's fair. If you like Stranger Things, you're going to love Firestarter. (laughs) And if you like Firestarter, you're going to hate Stranger Things. If you're middle-aged and cranky. (laughs) Hey, that's me. And our target audience, apparently. (laughs) So, we open, Chad, on the silky smooth sounds of Tangerine Dream. And as the credits play, we get kind of these plumes of smoke that are inconsistent at best. Dude, if you're watching this movie and you don't know what it's about during these opening credits, you're thinking, this might be a sexy movie. Oh, 100%. I had my pants off already, and I knew what was coming. But this opening will seduce you, Chad. Even when you get the title and it says Firestarter, you're like, whoa. Right. What is this all about? This just moved from sexy to steamy and a good chance of becoming erotic. Yeah, I got a three alarm in my pants, Chad. (laughs) Then we get the stars of this movie listed one by one. And then it says starring in order of appearance because that's to make sure all the crybaby actors don't get their fragile egos bruised by someone else's name appearing before theirs during the opening credits that nobody's gonna read except for Bo and me <laughs> it was george c scott who soured that one <laughs> what <laughs> there's a lot of that well uh, drew barrymore is really the star what if you don't know what Firestarter is and you're watching Cinemax uh-huh. at, I don't know, like 1145 on a Saturday night and you're like, what is this? And you got the sexy smoke and you got Tangerine Dream and you see names coming up. And the first name you see is David Keith. And you're like, this might be a sexy movie. The smoke plumes are flitting around. I'm going to light a candle. And then you see the name Drew Barrymore. And you're thinking, whoa, is this Poison Ivy Drew Barrymore or is this Irreconcilable Differences Drew Barrymore? Yeah, you got to do some quick math there. You're like, wait, 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 is this, am I going to see her tits? No, no, and I shouldn't. Then you get Freddie Jones and you're like, who is that? And I looked up Freddie Jones and he was a real deal actor. He was in the Elephant Man and Dune and a bunch of stuff. And I'm sure he's probably dead now, but if he's alive and he's listening to this, I apologize. I didn't know your name reading it. And quite honestly, please turn this off. There are better things you can be doing with the few remaining moments of your life. You're so close. Then you get Heather Locklear and Bo, we might have a sexy movie on our hands. Drew Barrymore might, it might be one of those things where like they have her for the day, you know, <laughs> where they're like, oh, hello, Drew Barrymore. Well, you, now time to send you off to camp. 
Time to get sexy with David Keith. Yeah, somebody order a pizza. There might be bikinis. Yeah. You know, there might be a car wash, you know? Lots of blonde hair and batting of eyelashes. Let's see who's up next, Bo. Martin Sheen. Odds on that bikini car wash scene just went up a little bit, my friend. You think? (laughs) Well, he's the manager in, in, in my mapping out of this hypothetical plot. And then we get George C. Scott, followed by Art Carney. Not a sexy movie. <laughs> that Yeah, that's a hard left turn. But as you noted in the intro, Firestarter has real, like for real, real talented actors and actresses yeah. in this film. Yeah, no, big guns, man. Like legit actors. Like the kind of, like if you saw this cast and it wasn't called Firestarter, it was called like The Boy on the Dolphin, you know? And you saw right. this, you'd be like, well, I I don't know what the fuck a boy is doing on a dolphin, but that's a pretty good cast. I might check that movie out. <laughs> then we get to see the name Louise Fletcher, who you noted was Nurse Ratchet and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And then following her is Moses Gunn, who is the actor that played Carl Dixon. That was the character who eventually married Florida Evans on the TV sitcom Good Times after the original patriarch of that family, James Evans, died unexpectedly. Damn. 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 And then we get to see who scored our movie, Tangerine Dream. Yes. German pioneers of freeform electronica. Prog rock sensation, Tangerine Dream. (laughs) They did Legend and Blade Runner. And, like, they did some cool movies, but they are really the precursor to all the ambient mood music and police procedurals now, where it's just mm-hmm. a tone when someone's like, we found a body, and the the underlying music is just, boom. <laughs> it is that, but better. You don't like this? How about this note? Boom. Oh, this? Bong. Oh, look, he's breaking out the rape kit. I think that calls for a G. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I hold it. Like he is holding his breath. Like the audience holds its breath. Wanting to know who's the killer. (laughs) The movie starts proper, and we get an establishing shot of Washington, D.C., and it's late at night, and most of the city is in total darkness. If it's not for the slightly visible towering Washington Monument, you would really miss where this movie is kicking off, you know, in the nation's capital. And it's David Keith holding Drew Barrymore. Young Drew Barrymore. Young young Drew Barrymore, clearly on the run. (laughs) Yeah, not Poison Ivy Drew Barrymore. No. That's a big ask. And he's like, come on, baby, be liars of feather. And there are clearly some G-men following them in a sedan. Mm -hmm. And we get a little bit of background exposition here where one of the guys in in the sedan is like, hey, don't look at him. He can make you do things. Which immediately reminded me of the David Tell joke about the scuba man swimming up the toilet, swimming up his butt, making him do things. Do you really think that these three G-men aren't fully up to speed on the magical powers that David Keith has in this movie? Maybe they've got a ride-along. This scene should have gone like this. Don't let him see you. He can make you do what he wants. Really? No shit, Darren. I read the file. It's the same file you read. You always pull that move where you say things out loud to make sure people know what you know. It's pathetic. Just sit in the back seat and enjoy the smell of your own farts. And yes, it was you who was farting. It's not Brad. I know his brand, especially when he's driving. You're doing a bang-up job driving, Brad. Shut up, Darren. I think I got a glimpse of his daughter. Darren, what does she do again? 
<laughs> Since you've got all the fucking answers. Well, it's, it says here that she can she can make fire. We know what she can do, Darren. We we weren't allowed in the car without knowing that. I just want you guys to like me just a little bit. Well, that's not the way, Darren. I don't know what is the way, but this isn't it. The G-men get out of the car and they rush over to nab David Keith and young Drew Barrymore. But our father and duo duck into a yellow cab and they drive away. And the cab driver is none other than Antonio Fargus, a.k.a. Huggy Bear, from TV's Starsky and Hutch, which starred Paul Michael Glazer, who not only was Detective Dave Starsky in that show, he was also the director of The Running Man, which was episode three of this season of Pick Six Movies. Well, I'll be damned. We spend hours and hours coordinating all of this, people. It doesn't just happenstance come together as a random act of serendipity. We carefully construct each season like a master builder assembles a Stradivarius. It's art. It's science. It's beauty. It's basically the A Beautiful Mind wall, except with movies and fart jokes. <laughs> so Huggy Bear's driving this cab, and David Keith says, Take us to the airport, man. Uh, I'm going to give you a $500 bill, and you're going to drive me and my daughter, young Drew Barrymore, to the airport. But it's not a $500 bill, it's a $1 bill. But David Keith puts his hands up to the sides of his head and uses his magical mind manipulation powers to make Huggy Bear see the $1 bill as a $500 bill. Yeah. And it's accompanied by like a kind of sound where he puts the whammy on him. That's how you know that there's activity happening inside of his head. It goes wah, 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 wah. You know, Hans said you should just make it go wah. And I said, no, Hans. I have something better. And when he heard it, he spontaneously combusted. And that's why we knew we had the right project. (laughs) Because he was his own fire starter in that moment. So so Huggy Bear ain't going to pass up no $500 to go to the airport. And young Drew Barrymore and David Keith, they speed away as the G-men are left behind. And David Keith falls asleep. And we get our first of many, many flashbacks. I love flashbacks. I know you do. (laughs) I think this one, it doesn't quite get to the level of doing the flashback within the flashback, as we have seen in, say, your Legends of Mm Chun-Li's. But it is sick with them. In this first flashback, we see a bunch of scientisticians in a medical lab with a smattering of orderlies. And there are like eight or ten beds, and they're all filled up with dirty hippies. And the main scientistician, Dr. Wanless, he says, Half of you are going to get an injection that's a placebo, and the other half, you're going to get an experimental drug that will really set you back a bit. <laughs> it's a real, like, that'll kick you back. It's it's a drug's called Lot 6, whatever that is. Look, I gotta tell you people, Lots 1 through 5, fine. Lot 6, though? It's going to blow your fucking mind, man. Put on some Almond Brothers. We are going to hit the lot six, and we are going to ride this thing out till dawn, people. Jerry's got bongos. Kathy's got beats to make necklaces and bracelets. And also, we've got finger paints. Just create, people. Create. It's described as a hypnotic, mild, hallucinogenic. Dude, that description is everything I've ever wanted out of a drug. Dude, where do I sign up? No shit. Do I have to move to California to get that? (laughs) Just wait five years. It'll be around the corner. That's far too long for the... (laughs) 
hypnotic hallucinogen of my dreams we cut to this group of hippies and they're all laying on their cots and every person watching this movie thinks the same thing is that heather locklear right she is not a very good actress what is she doing in the same movie as george c scott (laughs) what (laughs) notice they have no scenes together this one hippie who looks like a billy goat asks dr wanless is this experiment being done by the shop and dr wanless says the shop uh what makes you ask about the shop i mean what the shop i mean no there's no the shop i mean ever there's never been a the shop there never was a the shop just no shop please stop asking questions what me worry how about you start tripping already (laughs) heather locklear cuts to the chase and says when do i get my money yeah and like everybody kind of laughs and claps like yeah now that we're tripping balls how about when you give us that scratch (laughs) i need pizza black lights Jimi hendrix posters beaded curtains are gonna buy themselves all the hippies are like yeah right on man when do we get our money and it's like <laughs> dr wanless says you'll get your money at the end of the experiment which i'm like that seems like the logical time to get your money for participating in an experiment leveraging mild hallucinogenic drugs yeah. afterwards if you get it before yeah, they could just all run away i think these scientists learned that one the hard way once upon a time yeah you can keep your five bucks and they said this is a double blind study that half are gonna get the the go-go juice and the other half isn't gonna get it and i was like you know what i think that's bullshit everybody's getting fucked up in this study yeah no everyone got the juice which is why it's the best say to be it well i mean initially it turns out it's bad for everybody but like heather locklear and david keith in the long run and even then it ain't so good they're laying on these cots and heather locklear is next to david keith and david keith has got this glorious early 80s thick mullet of hair it's and keep in mind remember this is david keith's flashback so he's totally smooth and sexy as he's remembering himself back in the day while he's hitting on heather locklear do you think this was an unreliable narrator scenario where 100 percent? there's there's no doubt in my mind the reality is he was like oh geez lady you sure are pretty and then in his dream it's just say you got the most beautiful hair i ever did see well david keith does use his signature pickup line when he looks over at heather locklear and says i'm broke too that is a bold opening gambit if you were dating she has a child with this man hey i can't afford shit how about we go hang out under the bridge the winos look glorious by firelight and if you stand close it can be quite a rush i could push you around in a grocery cart it will be real romantic, you and me. A lot of these boys will pass out quick, so we can drink whatever they leave. <laughs> Don't worry, I know what you're thinking. Do I have Kleenex boxes we could use as new shoes? The answer is yes, I do. Well, but, so some folks in the room are starting to giggle and trip and whatnot. And so are they, like, David Keith and his glorious hair, and Heather Locklear and her glorious hair mm-hmm. are giggling their way through it. And then she says, thank you for the compliment. And he's like, what What the fuck are you talking about? And she's like, you said that my hair was golden or beautiful or whatever he says. And he was like, yeah, I didn't say that. I just, uh, I thought it. You're weird. The doctor comes over and says, so young man, what are you thinking right now? And David Keith says, hey man, is this the part where we start shrinking down? <laughs> oh this is the best and then my question to you Bo, is 
Hey, Bo, you you want to get small? I mean, really small? <laughs> One time I got sucked up by the vacuum clean. <laughs> Man, the, even the shot, like after he asked the question, like it's a, a standard kind of medium shot of him and the doctor. And, and he, he's like, is this when we start to shrink? And then there's a POV shot from David Keith's <laughs> angle. It's like, honey, I shrunk the kids. Yeah, yeah it's like the, a Bird Eye Gordon movie where it's like, we're in the land of the giants now. It is so <laughs> funny, man. It is a, a one of those directorial <laughs> choices that uh, there are several shots in this movie and several moments like that where I'm like, man, I think this guy's a legitimately okay director. He's not great. He's no Spielberg or nothing, but he's a great like middle of the road genre director who's got a little bit of english on it you know there's a scene later where like all the shop guys are coming out of the woods in fire suits and it's like man that's like just a cool shot yeah he saw et right <laughs> like we got the girl right here let's fucking rip that off <laughs> there ain't no shame in that well david keith and heather locklear are laying on their cots david keith says to her i love you heather locklear i've always loved you i've loved you for a thousand years and she says because she's high and one assumes a career drug addict <laughs> i love you too david keith and these two self-admitted broke ding-dongs hold hands and they're in love they're in love but meanwhile <laughs> chad oh yes people around them are literally like clawing their eyes out like mm -hmm. Sam Neill in Event Horizon. Just like, ah, where we're going, we don't need eyes to see. And David Keith is just like, hey, after all this is over, how about you and me go get some ice cream? I think they toss, <laughs> toss it out about this time. And that young Drew Barrymore is how I met your mother. So we fade out and that flashback is over. And we're now in the backseat of Huggy Bear's taxi cab. Father and daughter and Huggy Bear at the wheel. And they arrive safely at the airport. Yeah, well, not quite so safe, Chad. Because some G-men are getting radioed by some other G-men. Who are like, hey, we ought to check the airport. That seems like a, a, a smart place for them to go. Hey, that was exactly what I was going to say, guys. I was just about to say. Darren! Go Shut up! I, I was going to say that. I, you know what? Save it for lunch tomorrow. Say, hey, remember when we were in the car? I was going to say that right before. Don't do it right after. It makes you look like an asshole. I'm taking tomorrow off. Then it can be Wednesday, Darren. I think you're missing the larger point. This is your whole problem. You get too granular. You're, get, you're, you're getting lost in the weeds. But yeah, they're like, hey, by the way, David Keith has these powers, but reports suggest that he might be winding down is the way that they put it, that he might be like causing all kinds of damage to his brain by using his power and that he might be slowly killing himself every time he uses it. One of the guys from the, the, the shop is like, good. Oh, he fucking dies. And you're like, whoa, man. What'd he ever do to you? He made me try to suck my own dick one time. There, I said it. Is that in your file, Derek? Darren. Yes, it is in the file. Derek, whatever the fuck your name is, I don't care. Hell, I'm driving this car. You know what? I'm tired of being known as Brad, the guy who tried to suck his own dick. The, the guy who went to Brazil for a special surgery to remove two ribs. To achieve sucking his own dick is how I would like to be known. David Keith bending me over like a damn pretzel. <laughs> it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. And the worst part is I couldn't even do it. Shit. Let's go in this airport and see what the fuck is going on. So David Keith is having a chat in the airport with Charlie about like young Drew Barrymore, young Drew Barrymore. And he's like, <laughs> Hey baby, you might sense this is a bit of a theme, but we are broke as shit. 
and we have got to do some stealing. And she's like, but stealing's wrong. And he's like, remember what I told you about the big bad and the little bad? Greater and lesser evil is is how he puts it. What young Drew Barrymore says is, big bad is what I did to mommy. And I'm like, whoa, did she kill her mom? Yes. This is getting good. And then she says, I made mommy scream. Yep. And all I'm thinking is flashback, 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 flashback. Not yet. Not yet. No. Oh, it's a real cock tease of a flashback, this one. And then they head to a phone booth, and we get a patented Stephen King conversation. By the way, Chad, the Stephen King thing of the week I don't need is where... The, it's this? Yes. This is the one. It is a, a soldier having a conversation eerily reminiscent of the one seen in Silver Bullet earlier this season. Yes. Where the soldier is telling this pretty blonde girl, he's like, hey, I am not responsible and I am not getting married. And then the the blonde girl like sees young Drew Barrymore and gives her a little smile. And and so, you know, they're kind of locking eyes here and there while David Keith is whamming the, the telephone. Yeah, it's vomiting up quarters. I mean, come on, it's dimes. This was the 80s. This is a shitty scam at best. This is the scam of the desperate. But apparently his psychic powers, he can make the change spit out. So they gather all that up and his nose starts bleeding again to indicate that indeed this might be killing him. And on the way out of the phone booth, we get a little bit of hair blowing on young Drew Barrymore mm-hmm. for the first That's time. That's when you know young Drew Barrymore is about to fuck somebody up. Her hair oh, starts blowing in the wind. It's pretty good. Yeah. So her hair starts blowing a little bit and she gives the soldier the old hot foot where she mm-hmm. sets his, his boots on fire. And as soon as David Keith sees this, he doesn't help the soldier. He just grabs young Drew Barrymore and bolts. He's like, we got to get out of here, baby. And then they're gone. And the soldier then runs for a bathroom and dunks his feet in the toilet to put the fire out. And some like security comes in. They're like, hey, this is a women's room. You got to get out of here. And in a real, you know, Washington, D.C. question mark accent. He goes, hey, you mind if I put my feet out foist? And I was like, what? Where did this guy come from? Are we in Brooklyn circa the 1930s all of a sudden? I didn't catch that he was in the ladies' room. I just thought he ran into a bathroom. It was the women's room? Yeah, that's why the guards were following him in. And there was, uh, I think, somebody's Okay, room. well, that makes more sense. Because I was thinking maybe his shoes had paper bag and dog shit on them. And that was somehow class C misdemeanor. Or something. <laughs> that alerted the authorities. <laughs> right. We got a real shit heel down here. <laughs> so we're outside the airport. And David Keith and young Drew Moore, they're running off at night out on the tarmac and young drew barrymore is explaining herself dad you see i saw this asshole being a total dick to this pregnant girl and i couldn't help myself and i just set his feet on fire okay and then david key says it's okay honey it could have been so much worse it could have been a lot worse you could have set that guy's face on fire yeah he's like kind of giving her a pep talk but he's fucking it up real bad no no baby it's fine i mean you could have literally melted his face off so that his eyeballs popped out of his skull in front of us and scarred us both mentally for life. But you didn't do that. That's good. Young Drew Barrymore says, what if I did to him what I did to mommy? And I'm thinking she killed her mom. And I'm like, this is it. Flashback, flashback, flashback. Not quite yet. Instead, he's like, hey, we need to start walking, baby. Single file like Indians. You're like, oh, that seems uncomfortable. Little do we know what's coming. (laughs) He's like, stay as far to the side of the road as you can. And I got to say, man, at this point in the movie, here's the thing I know. I like Drew Barrymore. 
She is yes. cute and charismatic. And I like David Keith and I like their relationship. I like the fact that Absolutely. he is so like over the moon for his kid mm-hmm. and, and is just desperate to protect her. And we, we see the, the guys from the shop show up at the airport and it's clear that because of the melted boots and whatnot, that young Drew Barrymore and David Keith have been there. And then we cut back over to uh, the shoulder where young Drew Barrymore is like, I can feel the shopmen again. And we need to get off the road. So they duck off the highway. But David Keith starts rolling down the hill all higgledy-piggledy. Mm-hmm. And ends up hurting himself. Like rolls into the, the road and is kind of dazed for a second. And a 18-wheeler is barreling down on him. And at the very last second, as, as young Drew Barrymore is screaming at him, he gets pulled out of the way. And- <laughs> right. There's a really sweet moment where she's like, I thought you were going to die. And he's like, I would never do that to you, baby. You're all I got. And that's fine because I'm crazy about you. And she's like, I'm crazy about you too, daddy. It's like, oh, I like these characters. She's really good in this movie. She she is adorable and, and kind of like powerful when she needs to be in the finale we'll get to that at the end of the movie right she's great yeah i like these kind of tender moments between father and daughter and i think they work in this movie but they, they say like hey now because we did the scam with the the payphone we have enough money to get ourselves a room somewhere and so finally chad flashback that's right. They're doing an experiment at the McGee household. So it's Heather Locklear and David Keith and young Drew Barrymore, younger Drew Barrymore by mm-hmm. a little bit. And uh, they're in their very 1980s home. Oh, yes. There's like a wooden spoon and a wooden fork on the wall. There's Sanka on the table. Everything is wood paneled. <laughs> Like the walls, the countertops, Drew Barrymore is wood paneled. There's an E.T. stuffed doll sitting on the counter. Yeah, remember this, kids? And But it's kind of a neat moment. It feels kind of poltergeisty in a way of like, oh, she's got this power. Let's, let's see what she can do with it. So they're getting her to, to toast bread by David Keith holding uh, a slice of bread by a pair of tongs. It starts to brown and then it catches fire. And he's like, whoa, whoa, hang on, baby. You got to let it get away from you a little bit if you had a kid that could start fires with their mind what would you make them do grill meat with their mind they could make you s'mores anytime you wanted just like in the comfort of your own home right i mean why do you pay for water heaters if you've got a fire starter they could remove an unwanted tattoo with enough practice hey young drew barrymore i'm about to take a shower heat that shit up you know how i like it they would be the ultimate prankster at birthday parties you know because they keep lighting the candles when people blew them out. Yeah. They would be great for having a fireplace. Mm-hmm. Cleaning the oven. Heating that shit up real good. Right. Like having a self-cleaning oven that took like two and a half minutes. That would be good. Again, you never have to pay for heat again. You just have them in the same room with you long enough to warm up. <laughs> get it up to about, I don't know, 76 in here and then get the fuck out of here. I'm about to fuck your mom. Oh my. Right. After burning this piece of toast, Heather Locklear says, it's time for bed, sweetie. And young Drew Barrymore says, screw you, mom. And she just sets the oven mitts around Heather Locklear's hands on fire. And she's kind of screaming and flailing and throws them in the sink. And then young Drew Barrymore starts crying. And David Keith says, you got to control this, baby. It's a bad thing. Baby did a bad, bad thing. 
Then there's a mysterious phone call on the hilarious 1980s phone and David Keith answers it and there's nobody there. So he just hangs up. Yeah. And then he says, there's nobody there, baby. And Heather Locklear is like, we know who it is and they're making sure we're staying put. That's how they do it. Yeah. And then David Keith has another dream further than he'd ever dreamed before. (laughs) And he comes home to find the house in mild disarray. There's like a chair pulled out from the table. Some salt (laughs) is spilled, but then he goes into the garage where the washer and dryer are and the washing machine has blood on it. And he's like, oh no, oh no. And then he sees that the blood goes to a closet and he's like, don't be there, don't be there. And then he opens it up and sure enough, in almost Halloween style, Heather Locklear just spills into frame on uh, this ironing board dead. So the bad guys stuck a rag in her mouth and then they folded her up and tucked her away in the ironing board closet in the laundry room right it was probably one of them's like first day on the job and they're like what did what did you do with the body you do you did you dispose of it hey derek dispose of this body oh geez where am i gonna put it i'll lay it on this ironing board she's too tall what you missed body disposal day at, at closet? No, no i got it guys All i right. got it we're gonna go upstairs ah. and look for the little girl you take care of the ah. She's so heavy and so pretty. Oh, no. Ah! No, 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 Derek. After David Key sees this, he like runs upstairs and he's he's like, Young Drew Barrymore! Young Drew Barrymore! Where are you? I gotta tell you, one of my favorite things in this movie is when he realizes she's not there and he makes a phone call to like the family friend where he's like, Joan? Uh, is Charlie there by any chance? And he's trying to hold his shit together, but he's like... <laughs> Barely holding on to sanity, much less small talk. He just saw his dead wife sandwiched up in the laundry room closet. No, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying that in the movie, it's beautiful. (laughs) Joan? It's me, David Keith. I'm happily married, David Keith. Is, is young Drew Barrymore with you at the at your house that you and your husband own? How's my wife? She's she's just doing some ironing, Joe. She's just doing some ironing. We get to David Keith arriving at this mystery house where Joan lives, and uh, we see some G-men uh, that work for the shop, and they're chloroforming young Drew Barrymore, and they're just tossing her in the back of a conversion van. That was big in the 80s. Yeah. Conversion vans and child abduction. It's always been popular, Chad. It just got famous in the 80s. (laughs) David Keith arrives on the scene, and he puts his hands up on his heads, and we get the wah 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 And he uses his special mind powers on these bad guys, and he makes the G-men drop their guns and then spontaneously go blind and david keith's nose is bleeding and he escapes with young drew barrymore in his arms while the g-men scream in pain because they are blind i gotta admit i like the you're blind you son of a bitch look (laughs) i'm a simple man chad a psychic forcing blindness onto a government official it's really all i need back in the motel let's be honest you think brad showed up and he was like you lucky sons of bitch he just made you all go blind be glad he didn't try to make you you know suck your own pecker shut up darren Derek. get in the back seat shithead and enjoy your farts hey he just touched frank's face and said thinner that's fucked up it was fucked up y'all we come back to this hotel where david keith wakes up young drew barrymore in the morning and then we see this military font that officially introduces us to the shop yeah in longmont virginia 
So it's a real place, and it is this antebellum-style white plantation house where the majority of our movie is going to take place. Yes, we start with Martin Sheen biking into the movie. Yeah, you know, think global, act local. I will take uh, Martin Sheen anytime I can get him. I love Martin Sheen. Um, he is one of one of the best things about West Wing, which is one of my favorite shows ever. So he pedals into uh, this big white office, the plantation that you were describing, and his secretary is like rainbirds in your office and he's like oh fuck nah uh, he's like when did he get back and she's like well he got back this morning and rainbird is of course george c scott because when you think native american you think george c scott when i saw him i was thinking tai chi instructor he looks like uh steven seagal in 15 years <laughs> there's a ponytail he's got a cool patch He's chunky. He doesn't give a shit. George C. Scott is the living embodiment, or not so living anymore, but was the living embodiment of that Patton Oswalt joke about running into Brian Dennehy at the craft services table. And uh, Brian Dennehy telling Patton Oswalt, hey, wingy whatever the fuck we want. Who cares? We're character actors. That is George C. Scott brought to life. You think after he got his Oscar, he was just like, fuck it when he had the oscar he was hanging on to it like you know he was never a small dude and it's just after that he was like you know what's great bourbon he was the bad guy in the rescuers down under which was the sequel to the rescuers and they basically just animated george c scott as himself in that movie what what animal was he he wasn't he was a person oh and he he tried to kill a child and mice well, that was the plot of The Rescuers, too. Well, it's The Rescuers Down Under. I, did I mention it was in Australia? Oh, well, that's why it's different then. Yeah, and George C. Scott doesn't have an Australian accent either. <laughs> At that point in life, I'm sure George C. Scott was just like, I do what I do. His ponytail comes down and dips between his shoulder blades. And he's also got this milky left eye mm -hmm. and a scar running down the side of his face that makes him look a little bit like Dr. Evil for our middle-aged to younger listeners. He looks like Blowfield for grandparents or James Bond fans that have joined us for this episode. I like when Martin Sheen walks into the office and he asks uh, George C. E. Scott, you know, hey, how was Venice? And George C. E. Scott, the first line he has in the movie, Thinking. It's all fucked up there. And and so Wanless is there as well. Uh the good doctor Wanless. Yeah. Our good doctor who hands out lot six. Right. And Wanless is like, Did you catch him? Have you caught him yet? And we we gotta make sure they're expunged. We gotta kill these fuckers. They're the greatest threat facing the nation. And Martin Sheen is like, eh, let's dial back a little bit. You seem very excited. And then Wanless delivers some exposition here where he says, Lot 6 was a drug that synthesized the effects of the pituitary gland that's responsible for psi powers, as all scientists and readers of X-Men comics know. He says, 8 out of 10 of the experiment subjects that were given Lot 6 in the original experiment died or committed suicide. 8 out of 10? Uh-huh. So, basically, everyone committed suicide except for David Keith and Heather Locklear? Or died, yes. At Maybe Heather Locklear killed herself by climbing into that laundry closet and stuffing a sock in her mouth and then sandwiching her body between the folded ironing board and the wall. It's like uh, when LSD is released for in your system years later when you lose some weight or something and you have one of those flashbacks and she was just like, fuck, I got to kill myself. Hey, uh, honey, I'm going to fold myself in the ironing board. If you don't want me to do it, say something right now. Okay. Dr. Wanless goes over to the window and he starts 
going on and on about how the serum should have been a harmless experiment and blah 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 so naturally martin sheen walks over and pours him a drink from this fully stocked bar it's a good three fingers of scotch and it's what nine o'clock in the morning this guy should be at a friends of bill meeting happening around the corner at the shop and not with this duo of enablers you've got a problem dr wanless admit it well wanless goes on (laughs) To uh, give us more exposition where he's like, hey, so because these two survivors had this kid who has these uh, fire powers, uh, he was like, you know, when her pituitary gland goes nuts when she hits puberty, like she might have the latent power of a nuclear bomb now. The way he puts it is, when her dormant pituitary gland becomes the dominant force in her body for 20 months, could she crack the earth in two like a china plate in a shooting gallery? And as soon as he hears that, Martin Sheen isn't like, that is the greatest threat confronting mankind. Mm-hmm. He's like, super soldiers would be awesome. <laughs> and Wanless is like, no, you're taking all the wrong lessons from this. Didn't we already cover this plot in the Fantastic Four remake? Yeah, but this is so much better. <laughs> You know, sometimes it's not the song you play, it's how you play the song. And this is a good example of that, where that movie is a stinking pile of shit, and this movie has a a little girl blowing people up at the end, and it's awesome. Dr. Wanless stands up and he says, No, 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 no more experiments. Don't force me to go above your heads. Which I have to ask you, Bo, who is running the show here? Is it Martin Sheen? He doesn't really seem to be in power it's not dr wanless good god help us if it's george c scott and given the time period i'm about 90 percent sure that they're talking about george bush oh well that makes mm-hmm. sense it does and that's the real horror you're talking herbert walker not w right the the smart one uh the one who was vice president at this time and also yeah. former head of the cia running the shop hmm? i like all that uh-huh anyway he finally storms out i'll go over your head and george c scott is like well he's an excitable little bitch if i had a nickel every time somebody said that about me bo that they were gonna go over your head or that you were an excitable little bitch both oh fair enough then i'd have a dime and i'd make a phone call well martin sheen gives george c scott a look one of those like you ought to kill him kind of nods and George C. Scott gives him the nod back like, I am totally going to kill that guy. you imagine having the power to have someone killed with just the nod of your head? The implicit understanding and what if it was wrong? What if that nod was, we're getting Chinese today, right? You nodded your head. Well, no, I just wanted some General So's. <laughs> I did not want him dead. <laughs> well, you got both. So, you know, on the one hand, I do have General So's now. So it's not a total loss. Everyone back to work. Good job, everyone. We've all learned something. We cut to rural somewhere America, and we see David Keith and young Drew Barrymore crossing the street from the hotel where they spent the night along with prostitutes and drug addicts. And young Drew Barrymore says, where are we going now? And so David Keith says, I don't know, young Drew Barrymore. We got to find ourselves a place to stay. But I got an idea. What if we send letters to the important newspapers? And then in these letters, we'll tell them what's going on. And then the shop will have to lay off of us it's a brilliant plan what do you think young drew barrymore she's like i'm not psychic but this sounds like it's gonna go badly that's his plan it's so quaint and simple the hero of our movie has a plan and that plan is to write letters to newspapers yeah i mean i guess the idea is like this is gonna raise enough of a stink that they can't be killed because 
then they would it would be obvious who did it. Dear Mr. New York Times, my name is David Keith. I was given a mild hallucinogenic drug. Now there are rogue government agents trying to kill me and my daughter who can set fires with her minds. Please write a story about this so they will leave us alone. Sincerely, Anonymous. Let me give you another scenario. <laughs> Dear Breitbart News, I was given hallucinogens by the government. What's this in the trash here? Hold on a second. Uh, oh my god. This information could start a war. Wait a Info Wars. <laughs> yes! Yeah, InfoWars, it feels like the natural extension of George C. Scott's aura in a weird way. <laughs> Just gruff and err. Put a pin in that. We'll come back in a moment. Right. Again, George C. Scott playing a Native American gentleman in this movie. <laughs> in what can charitably call be called a tan what's more believable george c scott as a native american john wayne as genghis khan or mickey rooney as the upstairs apartment oriental neighbor in breakfast at tiffany's Obviously, George C. Scott is the clear winner here, but that's like, well, this is the least painful thing that we can put in your rectum. It's it's terrible. It is terrible. It is going to wreck you for years. This is, this is the least bad. It's outrageous, but also it feels, I don't even want to say quaint because that, that is short selling the fact that this is clearly racist, but also it's like you got george c scott how do you not put george c scott in your movie and you're like i don't know he's the chair i don't care what whatever we got to make him in this movie to have george c scott if he's got to be a native american he's gonna be a native american if he had to be black god help us all he was gonna be black (laughs) young drew barrymore says to her father hey we could go see granthers and i'm like is that her cute name for her grandfather or maybe she hadn't really sobered up for this day of shooting and was slurring her words a bit she'd had a couple of belts by this point (laughs) how about we go to granther's what what baby i don't how much further you want me to go you want to call cut or just keep rolling all right we're losing daylight people come on (laughs) i told you we shouldn't have done this scene after lunch that's when she's worse Shut up, David Keith. I'm going to push you in your nose. Guess what? E.T., fuck you. How about that? This isn't apple juice. This is apple brandy. So they decide they're going to go to Granther's or Grandpa's or wherever else. And then we see two cars full of G-Men show up and the music kicks in and it's like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And you're like, oh, here we go. This is going to get good. But then Art Carney shows up in his old pickup truck. Yeah. And this scene ain't going nowhere. He kind of saves the day, sort of. But... When, when he picks him up, he's like, hey, you know, who are you strangers before I let you into my car? Uh, or old pickup truck. And young Drew Barrymore really takes over here and shows what a little sociopath she is in this movie. Well, she's drunk. Yes, I'm having a baby brother. Well, we're trying to get to Knoxville. You should drive. David Keith, he goes into exhaustive detail about who they are and their plan for the immediate future. He's like, hey, uh, yeah, we're headed to Knoxville, Tennessee, where my, my wife, who just gave birth to a baby boy at 1.40 a.m. today, and uh, our yellow 1978 Volkswagen bug with a broken out front right headlight, well, it just blew out the clutch. And anyway, I need to get to Knoxville in Tennessee, as I mentioned before, and see my wife. Did I mention her name is uh, Marie uh, Andriana? She was named after her aunt on her father's side who's first generation immigrant from germany and then yeah young drew barrymore sobers up enough to say my brother's name is andy like somebody handed her some peanuts oh 
Andy! David Keith asks Art Carney, well, how far are you going, old timer? And then Art Carney says, into this fence? Yep. It's practically that. He's like, well, I'll get you 10 miles closer. It's like, it's a fucking point. (laughs) So they jump in the truck and off they go to get 10 miles closer to Knoxville, Tennessee. I gotta be honest with you. You should probably be heading in the other direction. Zing! Yeah, it's a really stinky city. So as they're traveling down the highway uh, and byways of America, Art Carney passes uh, some of the the shop guys who have blown out a tire and are changing the tire on the road like a couple of stooges. I mean, just get roadside people. What the fuck? And it's like two extra bucks a month. So as as the truck passes by, one of the guys who is clearly not helping change the tire. Yeah, Derek just like, hey, look at that. I saw two people look just like the people we're looking for. That is crazy. They're like, who? And they're like, I just saw this guy and he had a little girl with him and they were in a pickup truck. But it couldn't be them because they were with an old man and we're not looking for an old man, guys. And we're clearly not looking for a truck. But if we were, that would have been dead nuts. And they're like, Derek, you son of a bitch. Did you get the license plate? He's like, yeah, of course. I have an eidetic memory, as most of you know, if you bother to talk to me for two seconds. Art Carney, he offers to give young Drew Barrymore and David Keith lunch at his house with he and his wife, Nurse Ratchet. And it's such a sad state in watching this movie for me that I began to question Art Carney's motives because he's such a perfect good in this film, unlike our villain, George C. Scott, who is filled with horrible, horrible intent. But there is that moment where you're like, he is totally going to kill them and eat them. (laughs) I've seen this movie before. I know how this goes. They all show up at the farmhouse to eat lunch. And um, as they're going inside, Nurse Ratchet comes out and she gives her husband the stink eye for showing up with these two vagrants. And then during lunch, young Drew Barrymore, she gets so full. She says, if I eat another bite, I'm going to split. That's what my mom used to say. I mean, that's what she says when she eats too much while she's still alive. Like she is right now alive. We don't even own an ironing board. And if we did, it wouldn't be covered in my mom's blood because she's still alive. Also, I totally never set her on fire. So shut up. And immediately Art Carney is just like, hey, nurse ratchet. Why don't you go ahead and take young Drew Barrymore out and uh, feed the chickens? I'm going to have a little talk with uh, David Keith here. And he's like, oh, shit. Oh, baby, you you fucked up. You blew her cover. I might have to kill these old people now. You did this. <laughs> I'm going to make Art Carney suck his own dick. You can suck your dick. Wah, 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 wah. I did not expect that would come out of my mouth ever. (laughs) Art Carney. After uh, he leaves, or after uh, Nurse Ratchet and young Drew Barrymore leave, Art Carney is like, you want a beer? And he's like, well, I guess you, you know that I'm probably not Frank. And he's like, yeah, I kind of figured. And then he just kind of spills the beans. Like, he tells them everything. It's not like, hey, I'm going to cherry pick some information. David Keith is just like, well, first we were doing this hallucinogen and i was <laughs> i was having this mental conversation with this little hottie i told her how broke i was and she thought it was cool then we got married in a ceremony that only she and i attended out in a cornfield it's not legal in the eyes of man but it is completely legal in the eyes of god and that they're running around chasing those chickens well that there that's that's the the result of our love he tells art carney like i think at the end of the day they want charlie so they can reactivate the lock six program and i can't let that happen then uh young drew barrymore comes in and immediately is like you fucking told him you told him everything god damn it i went out fed the chicken so i come back you said everything. 
Why is he set up everything? At this point, we see cars coming down the dirt road to the farmhouse filled with G-Men. And on the wall, there's this thermometer with a cartoon devil on it. And the thermometer says, hot enough for you? It's the kind of thing that you would buy at the evil Cracker Barrel. Yeah. Then David Keith is like, baby, you can stop these men. And she's like, if I do something bad, will you still love me? And he's like, yeah, sure. Whatever this is going to take to get me out of this conversation, you on that porch. And then butter starts melting in a butter dish. The thermometer starts spiking up to well over 100 degrees. Things are getting heated. Yeah, and Art Carney is like, oh shit. Like, I doubted you for a second, but clearly she is doing this. And he's like, hey, you want me to get my gun? And and then young Drew Barrymore in an awesome moment is like, you won't need it. It's so good. It's really good. And she goes out onto the porch, flanked by David Keith, Art Carney with his fucking shotgun, and Nurse Ratchet. And our G-men have shown up. And there's a main kind of G-man, who's this really smarmy dude that's like, Hey, Charlie, we just want to be friends, you know? We're not here to hurt anybody. And she, she has picked up on, you know, their vibe or whatever, that they are planning to kill her father. Like, she is convinced that they're lying to her about keeping him safe. And, you know, it's just the typical bullshit of, like, come with us. Nobody's going to be hurt. We just want to help you. Blah, blah, blah. You know, you don't have to be on the run anymore. And then the G-Men grab David Keith. Right. And then one of the G-Men shoots Art Carney while they wing him in the arm. It's not a fatal shot. And then young Drew Barrymore just unleashes her fury on two of these G-Men and they explode into flames. Yeah. And then that main G-Man you were talking about, the leader of them all, he gets set on fire. So we got three human beings burning alive and they are incinerated down to their skeletons. Yeah. And David Keith, meanwhile, is telling all the other the shop agents, he's like, you need to run. I don't know if she can stop it. She's never done this before. You wouldn't have to tell me that if I'm one of those G-Men. If I saw three of my co-workers burnt down to their bones... I would just run with piss pouring down my legs. Yeah, I mean, she is blowing their cars up by looking at them. It's amazing. It's really good, and they're all running. Most of them on are, are on fire at this point. She blows up one car, and there are two mannequins that yes. they've staged around the automobile. That when it blows up, man, mannequin body parts and the car doors and windshields just go everywhere. You don't see stuff like this in movies today. It looks so much more fabricated. This is just a car with mannequins that they filled with explosives and blew it the fuck up. It's wonderful. (laughs) I love this scene so much. And there's a better one. Like, this scene is awesome. And there is a better version of it later. The ending of it is unbelievable. It's so good. After she has blown these two mannequins up, David Keith is like, all right, baby, it's good. You killed everybody. You murdered wantonly. You did a good job. Dude, she kills like 15 people here. She is like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And like all the survivors are running away. And David Keith just looks around the yard and goes, oh my God. (laughs) Like he is horrified by what she has done this monster that he has created Arcardi comes up and he's like hey uh, if you guys want you can take my jeep get the hell out of here and his justification for this is that the g-men showed up on his land without a warrant and tried to take two people away without legal cause yeah and also the g-men shot him because you know what else is he supposed to do you know this isn't russia this isn't russia is it danny 
Man, he goes so far as to be like, I won't be a good little Nazi doing what the fuck they say. And you're like, you go, Art Carney, man. Like, <laughs> we'll throw on some bad religion, knock back a couple of beers and talk about how the government's <laughs> fucking people. I love it. Any old man that is willing to pick up a father-daughter hitchhiker duo, offer them lunch, and then once he he sniffs out some bullshit on the dad, offers him a beer, that guy's okay in my book. Yeah, and grabs up a gun against his government as soon as he's <laughs> like, they did what? Well, bull to the shit. I will shoot any motherfucker that comes on my property. And then we pretty much say goodbye to Art Carney and Nurse Ratchet for the majority of the film. Yeah, yeah. Sadly, uh, they hit the road in uh, in his Jeep. Quick question here. What did these two do with all of those burned up cars and smoldering corpses? Oh, the government cleaned all that shit up. Did they? Yeah. I kind of envisioned that the two of them just dug shallow graves and made it disappear. All right, we're going to rent that wildcat, Louise Fletcher, and (laughs) you know how we had to do when the cult moved in down the road. This is followed by one of the best scenes in the movie where David Keith and young Drew Barrymore, they go to the lake house where the Grampers lived, and young Drew Barrymore asks her father if she'll ever be able to go to school again and be a normal child, and this father lies to his child. First time for everything, Bo. Yeah. And he says, yes, you know, you're going to be normal one day. And then young Drew Barrymore follows this up and says, after you write the letters, right? Because I want things to be normal. I want to be normal like everybody else. And this scene, you know, to your point earlier, it's a really good moment between David Keith and young Drew Barrymore as this father protecting his daughter and just this little girl that is a victim of circumstances that she had no real part of of constructing. Yeah, and he's doing his job as a dad here of saying, yes, of course that is going to be the outcome here. Like, you are going to be like everybody else. You, You are, you can be, you will be. And after we get this incredibly touching, beautiful moment, we cut to the most terrifying scene in this entire film. Yeah. So Wanless is awoken by George C. Scott, who is tickling his nose with this little <laughs> reed, like, it's in the middle of the night. Yeah. Middle of the night. Just so you wake up by your bed and there's George C. Scott terrifying already. You realize ponytail, smiling ear to ear, nicotine stained teeth, beady eyes, one of them milky. Yeah, and Wanless just looks at him like, what the fuck are you doing here? And George C. Scott gives him this really genuinely friendly grin that's like, (laughs) Uh, you know, I was just in the neighborhood. In your house at night, tickling your nose with a feather. And then karate chops him in the fucking nose and kills him. His face goes concave. Yeah. It's not like he smashed his nose. He mashed his head to fold in on itself. That's right. <laughs> and he he describes this later. But this is his patented move. This is like what he loves doing, which is staring <laughs> someone in the face, karate chopping them in the nose. And as he puts it, driving fragments of bone into their brain. He's a bad dude. Yeah. And and killing them instantly. It's, it's something. So... Uh, after our horrifying scene with uh, George C. Scott murdering Dr. Wanless, <laughs> we cut back to uh, David Keith and young Drew Barrymore, and they are dropping off the letters. Like, David Keith, good to his word, was like, 
all right, baby, I wrote some letters. We're going to drop them off. And takes them out to the mailbox in the middle of this, like, nowhere town. But there's an old couple at the general store or whatever who uh, are watching and see both young Drew Barrymore and David Keith and ultimately drop a dime on them. It turns out that the shop has had them kind of sitting around, just sleeper agents, essentially, keeping an eye out to see if these uh, two people show up. These two old people... Just hang out in the general store, hoping that David Keith and young Drew Barrymore show up to mail letters. Yeah, I, this is where it it strains credulity. I think the idea <laughs> is that they just live in this town and that they just got lucky or something. It's Dickensian in its uh, coincidence, for sure. Mm -hmm. So this old, old couple immediately calls the shop and Martin Sheen is like, okay, so they mailed something and George C. Scott is like, I'll go get them. And Martin Sheen is like, well, do you think it's going to be that easy? And he's like, huh, I'll get them. During this scene, George C. Scott says, I'll go get them and bring them back here so that you can run all of your tests on one condition. You give me the girl for disposal. Yeah. It's a horrifying way to put it, yeah. That's what he says. The old man wants to have this little girl for disposal. Uh-huh. And... Hello. Hello, I'm Chris Hansen. <laughs> Would you like to have a seat? Well, you know, at my age, I could prefer to stand. I, I think you should have a seat. What What's that in your hand there? Are those, are those wine coolers? Uh, actually... Uh, it's a garrote. It's used to kill a man. Oh, I can wrap it around the neck and pull it taut, you see. I'm, I'm sure that you can. I'm sure that you can. And in your other hand, those are condoms. Uh, you, you realize this is a child, a lineage of the Barrymore family. Well, that's what I paid for. It's what I expect. Would you care to leave, sir? Nope. I think I'm going to murder all of you. <laughs> I think that'd be a good time greatest episode ever of that show right but yeah so <laughs> the M martin sheen is like you're mad in that very martin sheen way and george C. scott is like <laughs> yeah yeah like you like <laughs> like we're all crazy and then he drops a real like rudy giuliani to date this episode where he's like uh -huh. but if something ever happens to me the shop will be closed in six weeks and six months from now you martin sheen will be in front of a judge for crimes that'll put you away for life. And Martin Sheen is like, whoa, man. Like, you ratcheted this up. I called you crazy, but wow. Wowie wow. George C. Scott says he wants young Drew Barrymore because she's young and beautiful and has the power of the gods. He says that the two of them will be close, very close. Yeah. And I was just like, oh god he is a great villain in this in the sense that he is loathsome <laughs> and it, part of it's the writing which is a little like airs on the side of creepy a little too much <laughs> but part of it is just george c scott being like hey, she's young she's beautiful you know you're like oh just <laughs> <Please> stop, stop. <laughs> so we cut to young drew barrymore just fishing and whatnot and having a good time with her dad. Meanwhile, some shop guys, Shanghai the letter carrier. Yeah, well, and it's George C. Scott and a random G-man. Because George C. Scott strangles the mailman. Right. And then they take the mail. Yeah, Derek's like, should I get these letters? He's like, ah, what's your name? Ah, uh, it's Brad. I can suck my own dick. Do you want to see me do it? What? No. I'm not Derek at all. Wait, maybe. 
<laughs> and then it, they steal the, all the letters that David Key sent. And I was like, man, that's a federal crime, Jack. You are playing with fire and not just the fire starter this time. Dude, this is 100% going to be on the local news. And it will be the headline of the Applewood Gazette Picune for the next three months as it is published every Wednesday and Saturday. Like, you can't kill a mailman in a town this size and not have that be the biggest thing in the last century. (laughs) Eventually there will be a parade to honor him. (laughs) But then we see the most unbelievable thing in this entire film. George C. Scott climbs a tree. (laughs) Nope. With... With his two hands holding a leather belt for support. And I'm saying this is the most unbelievable thing in this film. And I realize that this film includes a child conjuring up fireballs through sheer mental will. That is more believable than watching George C. Scott basically do an impression of Mulan. There is no way this fat old man is going to get his ass up a tree with nothing but a tiny leather belt. Meanwhile, he's like, hey, it reminds me when I met Brigitte Nielsen. <laughs> you just climb and climb until you give up and fall down. But let me tell you, the fall is worth it. <laughs> David Keith and young Drew Barrymore, they're getting ready to leave the lake house. And then young Drew Barrymore tells her dad, I'll never hurt another person in my entire life. And you're like, yeah, right. But I know how this is going to end. And so as they're leaving the lake house, George C. Scott shoots both David Keith and Drew Barrymore with tranquilizer darts and thunk, thunk, down they go. George C. Scott may not be good at covering his tracks, but he's a dead shot. And then the guys uh, that we talked about earlier from E.T., they all come out uh, from hiding uh, behind trees, kind of like Harry and the Hendersons. And they're all wearing these silver flame retardant clothing. And uh, they're kind of like spacemen. And George C. Scott, he just walks over and picks up the unconscious young drew barrymore and everyone's thinking oh this is not good Mm-mm. at all yeah it's a real mine kind of moment where <laughs> like david keith is lit like unconsciously literally holding on to his daughter and georgie scott just tugs her away just, she belongs to me now david keith wakes up inside the shop and he screams out for his daughter and here we meet dr pinchot played by moses gunn and he has sedated david keith and i like the actor moses gunn mostly because i like his name it's a real conservative name you know you got old testament on the front second amendment on the back i like that. it does double duty though because it can be like a real upstanding dude or it could be like a private eye down on his luck. Yeah. moses gunn private eye Moses Gunn, city commissioner. Vote Gunn. We're shooting to the top with Moses Gunn. I don't know. I I was not born to run a campaign. You only get a first, you only get, you get one chance to make a second impression. Nah, no, no, you're right. right. Moses Gunn, private investigator. Do you have a child who's being abducted by a pedophile called Moses Gunn? Track him down and I'll make him suck his own dick. Wow, you are pitching to a very specific audience. I don't know, man. If my child was being pursued and abducted by a pedophile and a guy named Moses Gunn showed up and told me, I'll track him down and I'll find him and I'll make him suck his own dick. I'd be like, dude, what's your daily rate? How much do you need for incidentals? Go get him, Moses. This movie is an extended version of Harry Dean Stanton in Red Dawn screaming, Avenge me, boys! 
<laughs> that is this movie played slow, where every moment is just like, oh, somebody's going to get fucked up for this. <laughs> Immediately, as they're kind of coddling, Dr. Pinchot is kind of coddling David Keith, and he tries to break free and, and gives one of the shittiest karate kicks ever committed to film to one of the orderlies, and then they end up sedating him. And Dr. Pinchot is like, we are going to make sure you're treated well. Drug him up, drag him to bed, and, and kind of toss him away. And and this is the point where David Keith is like, is this a shop? And Pinchot is like, you bet your ass it is. <laughs> Paraphrasing, clearly. And young Drew Barrymore is awake too. And she's trying to find a way out. And the rooms that they've got him in are like really nice hotel suites. Like, it's not just like you're in a cell. It's like you got a bedroom and a living area and a nice bathroom. And, you know, it's it's a kind of swanky for being a cell. Except all the windows are boarded up and right. hidden with drapes to let you know that you're in prison. Hey, look, you know, times are tough realistically state is a tough market you get the apartments that you can afford uh, and this is pretty good i like that young drew barrymore is wearing pink jammies and a pink robe and pink slippers right, well i'm sure this is the shit they supplied for right so right. they're just like Meh. it's like little little propane annie right <laughs> yeah and martin sheen enters with a cup of cocoa laced with flintstone chewable roofies well she that's what she thinks he's like no it's fine here i'll take a drink myself mm, delicious yeah but what she doesn't know is that he spent the last few years building up an immunity to flintstone chewable roofies first don't get involved in a land war in asia second to that <laughs> don't cross a girl with pyrokinetic abilities everyone knows that so she is immediately like where's my dad i want to know where my dad is did you guys roofie her already no she came in that way really really wow you guys you guys i can start fires Shh. Let me smell your breath, young lady. Oh my god. What? I thought Kahlua was like a milkshake. It's not? Is that vodka? No. Shh. It's kerosene. Let's <laughs> a little secret. I always carry sub-paint thinner. Also, your stupid spies here forgot the mouthwash. That's a gold mine. And anyways, Martin Sheen is like, your father is resting. He's fine. He wants you to cooperate. And she's like, bullshit. He would tell me to set you on fire. I bet. I bet he would say, set him on fire because he's mean. And then she says, I'll never start another fire in my life. And I want to see my father. And Martin Sheen's like, you know, you probably don't believe this right now. But we're going to be pals. And young Drew Barrymore is like, never. Uh, he's like, you know, never say never. And then she le uh, he leaves and then she fire starts the cocoa so that it bubbles over and whatnot. But this is also the first time we ever see her do the back off back off right where she starts to control her power and she makes it boil over but then she makes it subdue and you can see that she's sort of coming into her own and young drew barrymore is really good when she does this you believe it that this is a little kid who's sort of figuring out i've got this ability and rather than have it control me i can control it right and how and how do i stop that that's yeah. that's the big thing with her we get a quick scene of david keith where he's being forced to take pills uh to make them all zonked out and whatnot and meanwhile 
young Drew Barrymore is getting a bunch of gifts, including a ColecoVision, which is shit. And a Cabbage Patch Kid. Yeah. If, if you want to know more about Cabbage Patch Kids, Season 4, Episode 3, Jingle All the Way. We talk all about Cabbage Patch dolls in that episode. <laughs> we do indeed. <laughs> then George C. Scott shows up uh, wearing a rug from a ski lodge. Dude, he looks like a dental hygienist <laughs> assistant. He, he puts on his orderly clothes and just starts pushing around a cleaning cart. It's like watching a monkey push around a cleaning cart. I don't think George C. Scott even knew what a cleaning cart was, let alone how to push it around. It's got wheels. It's genius. Later on, when he actually uses furniture polish and he spritzes the coffee table, it's like watching a gorilla with a canister of spray cheese. He's like, oh, it came out. I should clean this up. It's like your first day as a doctor or something. Oh, that is a lot of blood. Well, (laughs) that is something. He does the housekeeping knock on young Drew Barrymore's door. Just housekeeping housekeeping <laughs> yeah yeah me uh 50 ish if i'm a day uh house cleaner here at your doorstep look i just want to clean your toilets fluff your pillows make your room feel pretty is this your dirty laundry basket i'll be taking all of this and i won't be coming back with it we'll give you new ones do you like pink <laughs> i like pink <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I like pink. Are you saying you want my panties? Because I will sell them to you. (laughs) It's not the same if I pay for it. It's the thrill of the hunt, Uh, sweetheart. Fine, I see a thing. You just be you, Rainbow. And she's very sad, partly because she's played a ColecoVision. And Georgie Scott says, My name's John. I'm going to clean your bedroom. And she doesn't say a word to him, because why on earth would you with this horrifying <laughs> ogre stalk through your bedroom? He, then he tries to like weasel in a little bit. He's like, hey, you want to teach me how to play that? You'll win all the time, because I'm old and no good with video games. Yeah, I know shit, smelly old man. She's immediately like, why does she get fucked, John? How about you do that for me? Just do me a big favor and fuck off. I was so worried that we were going to end up here. (laughs) I knew that we were going to end up with a drunk Drew Barrymore and a pedophile George C. Scott. I just, I knew it. That is not the (laughs) subtext of this movie, Chad. That is text. That's the second half of the whole movie. Yes, this is the vibe is George C. Scott could be touching her inappropriately at any second. And we as the audience are held hostage by this. That's why it's so terrifying. He does touch her inappropriately. All right, we'll get to it in a second. There's a whole nighttime (laughs) sequence on its way that is the best. And so David Keith is is demanding to know where uh, young Drew Barrymore is. Hey, where's my daughter? Where is she? Where's where's young Drew Barrymore? Pinshot is like, well, if you do the test, we'll see about letting you see your daughter. And they're like, all right, so we're going to go behind this one-way glass. And apparently the way his power works is he has to see you so that he can give you the whammy. And so they're like, you can't see us because we're going to be behind this mirror. We're going to be there. And then we're going to send in this soldier and you're going to try to whammy him Mm -hmm. to let us see if you you can still get it up, psychically speaking. 
And he can't. No, right. He's, he's lost his mojo. Right. Like a soldier comes in and he's like, hey, you look thirsty. Here's a pitcher of water. And sure enough, there's a pitcher of water and the guy pours a, a, a glass of water. And then he's like, that ink, it probably tastes a lot better with that ink. And the soldier's like, the fuck? No, that's gross. You're weird. Why don't you try to put your dick in your mouth? He's like, what the fuck? What, huh? Did you do that to Brian? I think his name was Brad. Uh, whatever we, we, it, it's so fluid here what about derek or darren i don't know the roster of people who work for the shop he was killed uh during the art carney massacre as it's come to be known <laughs> in the shop it so after this is over with george c scott who's one of the people observing he's like he stepped over he's been on the run too long and martin sheen has what i hope is said to me one day dope him up until we figure out what to do with him sure right that ain't the worst then a storm blows in this and this good lord chad this scene so at this point we see george c scott going into young drew barrymore's uh holding cell slash suite and as he enters for the first time in this movie he straps on an eye patch to cover that lazy milky eye of his now, in doing a little bit of research, it turns out that the contact lens they stuck in his eye to make it all milky created an infection, and that's why he wears the eye patch. I don't know if it's true or not. It doesn't really matter. But if I was a kid in a room and this hulking monster of a man came in once without an eye patch, then shows up the next day with an eye patch, it's going to ramp up the freak outedness to a level henceforth never known to me as a child. Yeah, especially if he's hanging around you all the time. He's like, oh, Cabbage Patch Kids. I like cabbage. Why don't you, <laughs> don't you teach me how to play with those dolls? You, you can win. <laughs> At dolls? Yeah. There's this storm coming in, and it's lightning and thunder. And young Drew Barrymore, she gets up, and she just kind of walks to the other side of her suite. George C. Scott says, are you scared of my face? And young Drew Barrymore says, I've seen worse. And it's a real backhanded insult. <laughs> like, you're ugly, but I've seen uglier. But I have melted people's face clean off and seen <laughs> the bone and sinew beneath. So, nah, you're fine, mostly. Our weather starts getting rough. Lightning and thunder cracks. And then all of the lights go out, Bo. And we get a real uh, performance out of George C. Scott where he's like banging on the door. He's like, let's out of here. You can't trap people in here like this. And uh, Drew Barrymore goes to him to try to comfort him. And he is all beside himself because it turns out he's afraid of the dark because the Viet Cong, Chad, mm -hmm. put him in a bad place during the war. And he's like, I remember what it was like in that hole. Eating spiders. They dehumanize you, kid. They turn you into an animal. You'll do anything. Eat anything. You ate sand? You ate sand? You know, the kind of thing you tell a kid when you're trying to, you know, become their friend of the time that the Kong threw you in a pit. Then he's like, look, I don't know where your dad is, but if you have a note, maybe I can pass it to him. And maybe, maybe you ought to do what they say, you know? And then he's like, I'll help you how I can. And the lights come back on. And then she just gives him a big hug. Yeah, and in this scene, young Drew Barrymore is wearing light blue gymnastic tights and a onesie. And George C. Scott is a pedophile, and it's disgusting. And he touches her leg. It's so gross. Yeah, and then when he gets up, he picks her up in his arms with her legs around him and stuff. And he, yeah. he takes yeah. her to bed and like tugs her in like a dad. It's really uncomfortable. <sighs> 
As he tucks her into bed, young Drew Barrymore says that she doesn't want to burn up any more people, which is a reasonable thing for a child to say. And as the lights come back on, she hugs and kisses him. And he's just over the moon, right? Yes. Once George C. Scott puts her to bed, everyone in the theater is so uncomfortable as he kind of brushes her hair back on her forehead. And as she drifts off to sleep, she says, good night, daddy. And George C. Scott smiles this big snaggle tooth grin. Yeah. It's just like, it's my birthday. <laughs> it's a real, <laughs> you know, I mean, it is just a spine chilling response to a child calling you daddy it should be like oh okay honey you know like awkwardness is the appropriate response not yeah you know it is so gross meanwhile david keith is in his room trying to like whammy himself a little bit where he's like you're not gonna take any more pills you got it to help charlie and we're like yes get her the fuck out of there dude <laughs> based on the advice of George C. Scott, young Drew Barrymore decides that she's going to uh, participate in the experiment. So we cut down to the science lab bomb shelter of the shop. And young Drew Barrymore, she's going to show off all of her fire starting powers to Martin Sheen and the whole crew. And young Drew Barrymore, first she sets some wood chips on fire and she says, you should have given me something harder. I was like, rocks? Like asbestos? Like, what are you thinking? My favorite moment in all of this scene is when Dr. Pinchot is standing beside her and she's like, you're going to need to leave because I hate you. And when I start setting up stuff on fire, it might be you. So, bye-bye. And he, he does have to, like, get out there. He's like, oh, well, all right. He leaves. And then, yeah, she, she sets the... It's like a tray of hickory chips. And, like, the wind starts blowing her hair back. And the needle on the machine starts spiking. And the chips start smoking. And then they burst into flame. And then the kind of the pan that they're on just kind of blows off the table. And then she does the back off. And throws this pyrokinetic energy at a tub of water which burns and steams and that kind of thing. But then the water catches on fire, Bo. Yeah, it's cool. Water is made of hydrogen and oxygen, and water doesn't burn unless you can somehow break apart hydrogen from oxygen and then burn the hydrogen separately. Yeah. But it's just basic science. Sure. It, uh, it's cool, though. Like, seeing a tub of water on fire is really interesting. Martin um, Sheen's just fucking out of his skin he's bouncing off the walls of joy because he's got proof that young drew barrymore can set things on fire including water and then dr pinchon says she wants to see her dad but we can't let that happen because david keith might tell her to kill us did you think about that dummies what if he tells her to burn it all down whoops <laughs> right and they're like oh yeah that's a good idea and meanwhile georgie scott is like uh hey uh anybody notice that your test subject has just kind of wandered out huh yeah they look at the test room and the door is open and she's just fucking left <laughs> margie's like will somebody go get her and everyone's like fuck that yeah how about how about no and finally george c scott's like all right fine i'll go get her you fucking assholes how disappointing was it that young drew barrymore just went to her bedroom to cry on her bed i thought she'd go explore look for her dad right why do you not just burn everything to get to your father at this anyway we'll get to it know. we'll get to it but right she goes to her bedroom kind of throws herself down on the bed and cries and there's a moment where there seems to be this psychic connection between her and David Keith, who is also in his room crying. Pfft, baby. Martin Sheen comes in and gives Andy his pills. 
who swallows them fast. And Martin Sheen is like, you know, listen, uh, David Keith, we just haven't had any positive results. And, and maybe you need a break. Maybe you should go to Hawaii. Remember in the 80s when Hawaii was the pinnacle of paradise? Oh, sure. It was the most exotic place you could possibly travel. Every TV show went to Hawaii. Yeah, we even had 5-0 there. We had Hawaii 5-0, but like the Jeffersons went to Hawaii. Sesame Street went to Hawaii. Like Hawaii was just sort of this exotic locale that every TV show eventually made its way to. And you got laid and you you went to a, a luau. Mm-hmm. And you looked at a volcano and you surfed. You found a cursed tiki idol. Yeah. It was great. It was Hawaii. Yeah. Who wouldn't want to go to Hawaii, David Keith? How about you? I'd like to go to Hawaii. Uh, yeah. He's like, well, Hawaii sounds pretty good. Um, hey, would I get my fix? Um, oh, yes. 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 That and many, many, many more fixes, David Keith. I, I like the fact that he is really playing it up here where he's just like, I'm a total junkie, man. Look, I'm just going to be straight with you. You keep giving me these pills. You can do whatever the fuck you want to do with my daughter. She's a bit of a drunk. Also, I'm poor and all the only money I've got is a sack full of that i stole from a payphone i gotta be honest with you i made 45 cents come out of the phone you got in here i don't even know how i did it after marching leaves we see that uh david keith has ditched his pills and he's not really taking them yeah he's spitting them out in the bathroom toilet and so charlie and george c scott go to a stable on the shop's land to ride yeah, horses we get to see a nice shot of george c scott's body double and young drew barrymore's body double riding horses around the campus yeah it's pretty good george c scott says to her look baby it's like poker if you ain't dealing from strength you ain't dealing i was like what kind of pimp wisdom is that what does that even mean why are you telling an eight-year-old this you can read more about that in our new book pimp wisdom 101 things to say to a hoe to keep her in place (laughs) i was gonna say nuggets of wisdom for life on the streets but i think you win But yeah, so this is the point where young Drew Barrymore is like, I'm starting to feel like I'm more in control of this power. And it's also stronger, which gets him hard because he's like, oh, right. You're a goddess. Oh, I'm going to murder you. And then in the next test, uh, young Drew Barrymore is supposed to set fire to a cinder block wall. Well, she can make a tub of water catch fire. Like, how about this? And she does. She like, like you see a point on the wall start to burn and then the whole wall is on fire. And then like the elevator doors in the room are starting to warp. And then she just balls her fist and the thing explodes. And Mm -hmm. then she has to throw her power at these giant blocks of ice, which also explodes. Back off, back off. It's, again, really a fun scene. And then she turns around and is like, I want to see my father. And if you don't let me see him now, I'm going to make something happen. I want to say, I really enjoy the crescendo of them exploring her ability to make shit catch on fire and blow up. From the soldier in the airport to the Art Carney farm encounter to this, it really builds on itself piece by piece leading up to the finale. So kudos to the director and everyone who worked on this film. It's stair steps to the finale that is so good. Yeah. So with 
some exceptions we'll get to but david keith uh is on his couch and we see that his powers have come back too Mm -hmm. because he is changing the channels with his mind from a woody woodpecker cartoon to something else and then back to the woody woodpecker cartoon hasn't everybody tried to do that with your lazy ass laying on a couch and you're just like can i change the tv with my mind the remote somewhere i can't the, the the one for me is like a pen that falls or something or that fork when you're at dinner and you're like it's like eight inches away and you're like eh, come on force just like you're picking up a lightsaber or something right yeah in the, the snowy planet of hoth yes but I, I like from a directorial point of view i like the fact that it the scene lands on him having proven to himself that his power is back and he kind of smiles and in the background you hear the woody woodpecker like uh you know it's like oh yeah he's kind of he's he's feeling his his shit like he's ready for battle right and then we get to a scene with pinshot and martin sheen and georgie scott sitting around uh drinking day drinking yeah I brought my private stash. And Martin Sheen is like, look, we got David Keith taken care of. We're going to ship him off to Y. Fucking fine. And Pinshot leaves. And Martin Sheen and George C. Scott have a chit-chat about what she would do, what young Drew Barrymore would do, if she knew who George C. Scott was. Uh-oh. And Martin Sheen is like, I think you'd uh, know what a steak in a microwave felt like. Or microwave oven is the way he puts it, so you know it's mm-hmm. 1984. And Marcin is like, hey, what are you really going to do with her when we're done? You know, you I know you said you want to dispose of her, but the fuck, man? And George C. Scott is like, well, John the Orderly is making her happy. And at the moment of her greatest happiness, John the Orderly is going to ram his hand into the bridge of her nose, killing her instantly. John the Orderly will be staring into her eyes as she dies. Right. I, I got that. I got that, George C. Scott. I assumed that you were going to kill her. I want to know what you're going to do after you kill her. Let me say three things to you. John Benet Ramsey. Well, he does say that when he dies, meaning George C. Scott, that he wants to take young Drew Barrymore's powers with him so that he can, what, fight fire with fire as he's burning in hell? It's a real, like, Mormon logic he is applying to this scenario of, like, well, I will have all my sister wives and the power of the god girl in my possession. I will be on the planet Kalump, uh, where I will rule over everything. I thought that this would be the Stephen King thing of the week that Bo doesn't need when he says that he wants to take young Drew Barrymore's powers into the other world. Now, I, that's the kind of crazy I like, where it's like, <laughs> I kill you and I wear your skin so I can become you. That appeals to me on a certain level. Martin Sheen just walks off, but not before pointing out the obvious when he says to George C. Scott, you're so crazy. You so crazy. <laughs> Rainbird. But then we really get confirmation of that because George C. Scott, he just sits all alone and starts giggling to himself. It's a real. He <laughs> 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 left me in the office all to himself and he's got the good brandy. <laughs> then we we get to david keith and martin sheen walking around the grounds of the shop during the day and which is a really kind of nice setup it's almost like a japanese garden kind of vibe and martin sheen is like well uh here's what we're gonna do david keith we're gonna take you to hawaii by military transport uh we're gonna get a helicopter from here take you to the base and then it's off to hawaii and he's like oh that's real good hey uh that grass you're holding boy 
It sucks that that thing is a actually a big snake. And swing, <laughs> right? It gives it the. Wah, 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 wah. We called this the the snake movement. It was my idea to call it that. It is it is the wah, wah, wah that you get earlier, but it is different. I don't know why he, suddenly he's French. And then David Keith just takes over Martin Sheen's mind and says, "You're going to go with me in that helicopter and." That's going to take us up to this, what, farm in Hawaii where I'm going to spend the rest of my days running and playing in fields all day long. Is that what's happening? He's like, yeah, we can do that. And then he's like, also, uh, my daughter Charlie's going to be with us. And that's where Martin Sheen's like, well, no, no, we can't do that now. And then David Keith gives him the double whammy. Then from then on, he's just like, all right, what do you need? We're getting we're getting your daughter. Sure. Yeah, that sounds great. And he's like, "You got a pen and paper?" And he's like, "Ah, uh, yeah, I sure do. Here, write whatever you want on it. You are, you are the man. <laughs> it's great. Like Martin Sheen's like, like kind of uh, compliance in this scene is great. Like he goes from mild resistance to just all right, whatever you got, sure." It's it's really good. Again, this is why you get people like Martin Sheen. Like he can pull stuff like this off. It's really good. He he says he's going to take this note to young Drew Barrymore, who doesn't be in the stables at eight o'clock. We are busting out of this place tonight, young Drew Barrymore. Right, and she does get the note, and she is elated. And John, the orderly, enters, and she is telling him all about the plan. She's like, "Oh my God, you're not going to believe this, John. You would never kill me or anything, so I can tell you this." We're actually going to bust out. My dad has arranged it, and we're meeting at 8 o'clock in the stables. He's like, oh, well, that sounds pretty interesting. Maybe, maybe I can take you down there. What are you wearing? This is maybe the most unrealistic thing in the movie, because there's a look on his face where he's like, so, uh, scale of 1 to 10, how happy would you say you are right now? Because that's key to what I'm about to do. And before he can karate chop her in the face, which is right there, the guy who is going to escort her to the stables shows up and is like, hey, I'm supposed to escort you to the stables later. I'm just going to introduce myself. Like, we don't, we're not going to do that for several hours, but I just thought you might want to see my face, I guess, get to know me. Mm-hmm. It's really weird. At any rate, George C. Scott sees this happen and he's like, oh, time, to, time for Rainbird to exit stage right. Our next scene, George C. Scott, he runs off to change out of his orderly screen scrubs into an outfit more befitting a movie villain eye patch leather coat dark denim jeans salt and pepper ponytail and gun he is dressed like richard jekyll from every movie he was in he's bad news he goes to the barn ahead of this meeting he's hiding in the loft and he watches as uh, the the guy who introduced himself earlier brings young drew barrymore to the barn and george C. scott has a revolver on the guy uh, who has brought young Drew Barrymore to the barn is like, hey, I don't see nobody around. Maybe I should take you back or something. And she's like, you need to get out of here. And he's like, ah, I can't do that. And she's like, you know what I can do, right? I will burn you alive. You need to leave. See you later. Well, when you put it that way. What is George C. Scott's endgame here? He's up in the hayloft. He's got a gun. Is he going to shoot her dad? Is he going to shoot her? He's going to kill her. Yeah, that's the whole his his whole end game is I need to be looking her in the eyes and when she dies. That is 100% his plan. And then pedophilia. I mean, implied but mm, yeah. Implied pedophilia is pretty much pedophilia. Right. Of course it is. So the guy who's been sticking around, she burns his hand and he pulls his gun and then she burns that and then she threatens him again and he leaves. And then George C. Scott starts to whisper to young Drew Barrymore from the loft and he's like, 
hey, hey, kid, get your ass over here. <laughs> and she's like, hey, my dad's going to be here in a second. He's like, none of that matters, kid. Just look me in the eye for another minute. He's luring her up into the loft. He's like, come on up here, Charlie. It's going to be great. She starts up, but while she is doing that, we get a quick scene with David Keith and Martin Sheen on their way to the barn in a little golf cart. And Martin Sheen is telling him all about Rainbird. And it's like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she's got this friend of hers that calls himself John the Orderly. But actually, he's a hired assassin. Played by George C. Scott. He's really uh, quite frightening in the role. I think you're going to enjoy it. He's like, what? That sounds crazy. We got to get there. David Keith shows up at the barn just in time. Young Drew Barrymore rushes into his arms. And it's kind of a In sw- slow motion. Yeah, it's a very sweet moment where everyone in the theater is anticipating someone will get shot as she runs in slow motion. Right, which actually surprisingly doesn't happen. No. And they actually get a hug, and... This is where Drew Barrymore tells her dad, she's like, Hey, my friend George C. Scott is hiding up in the hayloft. He has a gun, maybe. Or she didn't say that. She says he's hiding up for the hayloft. And David Keith says, Hey, young Drew Barrymore, that guy's an asshole. He's the one that brought us here. We got to get the hell out of here. You can't trust anyone. And then young Drew Barrymore turns around and says, Is it true, George C. Scott? And then it's here that George C. Scott just goes full on Kellyanne Conway. It's not a lie. I just mixed it up with the truth. As she is getting progressively more pissed, the, like there's a bucket of water that starts to boil. Uh-huh. And he's like, hey, if you try to burn me up, Drew Barrymore, you're going to kill all these horses too. I've killed a lot worse than horses. Yeah. Horses ass. George C. Scott is like, hey, I'll let your father go if you just climb up here and she's like i fine i can't say i'm gonna get there in one try and (laughs) then as soon as she starts climbing david keith whammies martin sheen and he's like you need to shoot him in the face all right martin sheen takes a shot and he tries to shoot uh georgie scott while David Keith grabs Drew Barrymore off the ladder, Martin Sheen misses. George C. Scott does not and shoots nope. him in the fucking head. And Martin Sheen <laughs> yes. unceremoniously exits this movie. It's just a, like, go <laughs> get and he's gone. <laughs> then David Keith sees George C. Scott and whammies him. And it's like, jump, you son of a bitch. And George C. Scott tries to resist but then he's too whammied and he does jump and he hurts himself but not so bad yeah it was a real dumb idea for david key should have been like you need to put that gun in your mouth and pull the trigger (laughs) instead of you should jump and hold on to the gun if you can and which is what happens he jumps off he lands on the ground and then aims the gun at david keith pulls the trigger david keith reacts but not it's too late the bullet has has nicked him in the neck that's bad and he is bleeding like your proverbial stuck pig then charlie uh, i think loses her shit is the diagnosis well she runs over to her dad and you know as he's bleeding out and she's just screaming i love you to her father right georgie scott is like look at me charlie look at me Because he wants to get her to lock eyes with him so he can shoot her. 
And so she does turn around so he can see her eyes. And he says the most disgusting thing in the movie, which is, I love you, Charlie. He shoots, but the bullet uh, explodes before it can reach her. Yeah, she's got like a force field around her now. Right. There's so much heat coming off of her that the bullets are exploding before they can reach her, which is pretty cool. And then Georgie Scott says, I love you again. And then Charlie blows him back into the barn doors uh, on uh-huh. fire. And it is almost not enough. No. It, it, having your living self burn from the inside out doesn't seem good enough or bad enough for this particular character. It's the the old uh, ruthless people thing with Danny DeVito. Like, I wish you were more violent. Yeah, that's how I feel about this. Like I, he needs to suffer more for how gross he is in this movie, but it's, it's good enough that she murders him, I suppose. So after he's gone, right. She rushes back to David Keith, who is dying. And he's like, Bobby, you gotta get away. If you got to kill, do it. You let them know it's a war. You do it for me, baby. Daddy, I can't leave you daddy. And then he's like, act. And he's gone. Yeah. He, he, my favorite line that he has in his death rattle, he says, you make it so they can't ever do anything like this again. Burn it all down. And you're like, fuck, this is going to get good. The wind starts blowing. Her hair starts flying. It's like, you just killed my dad. And he tells her this is a war. Yeah. He's like, just burn it all down. Yeah. And he just, you know, ugh, and then he's dead. And then she goes outside as the shop's forces are assembling outside. And it's like full, the wind is blowing her hair back and she's breathing real fast like she does when she's about to fuck shit up. It's like Lamaze breathing. She's like, <sighs> yeah, it's so good. The G- well, this this group of G-men run in wearing these flame retardant suits, and she just roasts them. She blows them out the doors of the barn like, <laughs> no, no, no. This is my coming out party. Like, flame retardant stu- suits are useless to you. She does save the horses. She blows the hinges off all, all the locks and whatnot, and the horses do run free. Bo, it's here. She goes full on Carrie White. Yes. To just lay vengeance to every asshole around her, and it is spectacular yeah pinshot is in a golf cart and she throws a fireball at that thing uh some dudes that are running away she like throws fire onto the ground that splits to chase guys that are running away from her to burn them alive it's so good like she is tossing fireballs at everything just dude there's one dude up in a tree chad (laughs) who is like a sniper or whatever and of course the bullets are all frying before they get to her so the guns are useless she throws a fireball at this dude in the tree and it is such a good effect like it blows the ever-living shit out of this dude as she's walking it's in this very measured pace it's just one foot after the other as she's just laying waste to everyone around her. Yeah, you fuck up and take a shot at her. She'll let you go. If you're just <laughs> if you're just fleeing for your life, you're mostly okay. But her performance is such that she's almost hypnotized. It's like she's conscious and unconscious at the same time. It is the fulfillment of her father's wishes. It is I'm this is not personal. I'm not here to enjoy this. I'm here to be a righteous sword of vengeance. 
And all of this is going to be obliterated when I am done. A bunch of G-men in a truck show up with machine guns and she just blows the truck up and flaming bodies just go flying up into the night sky. And then she's making her way over to the big white mansion in the woods of the shop. Um, One of the G-men from the beginning of the movie pulls a gun on young Drew Barrymore and shoots a bullet at her. And then young Drew Barrymore sends a fireball at him, which hits him and blasts him up into the air. And then a helicopter shows up. Oh, it's just like they had, like, in the line item of the budget, it was like, one helicopter to explode. And she sends a fireball up there and just blows the shit out of this thing, and it just comes raining down from the sky with flames. And then she just starts hurling these fireballs into the the main building, uh-huh. which blows up completely. Is it better or worse than when we saw the Dixie Boy explode? Uh, that's pretty good. I mm, this might be better because the buildup is yeah. so satisfying. I, I think this is better. Dixie yeah. Boy just kind of blows up off in the distance. In this case, there's a, a a cause and effect that's so gratifying. Right. This isn't just like oh, I guess they hit a gas line. This is well, like I am going to lay waste. It is you know this is the I am the Lord thy God kind of moment. Where that I so love in movies where a character is just like, you have come face to face with pure vengeance and there is no arguing with it. There is no reasoning. It is just going to happen. And I love it. In the end, she's covered in sweat and she begins to weep a little. And she says, for you, daddy, she's killed dozens of people in this finale. Yes. And it's so entertaining and it's all practical effects. I mean, you're watching, whether it's miniatures or whatever size building, they blow the ever-loving shit out of everything in this finale. You know, every now and again, you can catch some wires, whether it's the fireballs or people getting pulled out of whatever. Don't matter. Yeah, I'll take that every day over shitty-looking CGI. And it looks so good. And also, you know that a guy had to be set on fire and jerked by some steel rope into the air. And you're like, that's fucking crazy <laughs> for this for Firestarter for this movie. It, but it works. And 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 so let's get to the end of this where Irvin Norma, the uh, Art Carney and uh, Louise Fletcher, a.k.a. Nurse Ratchet, get a visitor when young Drew Barrymore shows up at their door and just cries, just weeps. And Norma holds her. So this child hitchhiked from the shop. Yeah. Back to the Art Carney farm. Right. And she murdered no less than seven pedophiles on the way there. Anytime <laughs> like an errant hand, not like just brushed casually against her leg. It was just Whoosh. right. Right. Yeah. It was like you dropped a, a cigarette in the lap of that airplane <laughs> character. Just, and then the last scene is Art Carney and Drew Barrymore marching into the New York Times. And uh, as, as she does so, she kind of looks up to the sky and tells her father, I love you, daddy. And in they go. Credits. Are Art Carney and Nurse Ratchet going to raise her like Ma and Pa can't raise Superman? I think that's the implication, right? That they're just going to take her in? I don't know. I mean, if, if they don't, she'll murder them. <laughs> you know, like, I think you guys are going to take care of me now. Or, I don't know, it could get hot around here. Wink! Wink! You want a glass of ice water? How about you want a glass of ice water? Because you're going to need it if you don't start taking care of me. 
And that's Firestarter. Yeah. That's how it ends. They go into the New York Times and apparently sell them their story and all's well that ends well. But you and I, when we were talking about doing the finale uh, of, of this season, we had both seen Firestarter recently when we were talking about like that and versus Maximum Overdrive. And it became clear very quickly as we were talking about Firestarter. <laughs> we were both very enthusiastic about it. And I do genuinely enjoy this movie a lot. I I think the performances are great. I think the practical effects are great. I think George E. Scott, problematic a character as he is, is fantastic and creepy. And Martin Sheen is really good in it. I, I mentioned this in the intro, but, you know, Roger Ebert was like, nothing happens. This is just a boring movie. I'm like, I disagree. How, I completely disagree with that. How how could you call a movie where a little girl is setting motherfuckers on fire left and right boring? I, I really enjoyed this movie. I have since I was a kid, and it turns out I still do. I really like it. So let me ask you both, as we always do, as we wrap up a season, I'm always curious to hear your top to bottom or bottom to top, however you want to rank them. How would you rank the six films that were included in this season, Hail to the King Baby? Let me start at the bottom. All right. Bot- we all know what's there. Bottom of the barrel is Graveyard Shift. <laughs> yes. That's the shittiest movie we did this season. After Graveyard Shift, I'm probably going to go, uh, man, we talked about some good movies this season. So uh, Graveyard Shift, Running Man, uh, Maximum Overdrive. Oh, wait. No, what am I saying? Graveyard Shift, Carry, Maximum uh-huh. Overdrive. No. Graveyard Shift, Carrie, Running Man, Maximum Overdrive, Silver Bullet, Firestarter. Boom! For the first time in Pick 6 Movies history, you and I have the exact same ranking of all six films. Uncoached. But yeah, I think that's right. That That's right. That, that That's the, the proper list. <laughs> it makes me so happy. I didn't know if and when that would ever happen, but I agree with that ranking. If you've never seen Firestarter, you absolutely should. If you've never seen Gray Shift, you absolutely should. Everything else is a mix match. Yeah, I, Silver Bullet is really entertaining. Yeah. Maximum Overdrive, I would recommend. And then the bottom three, mm, not so much. I'm, Running Man, Carrying Graveyard Shift. That's, you know, personal taste. Running Man's real borderline. That That's almost a borderline recommend. But yeah, the top three are like, yes, you should absolutely see Maximum Overdrive, Firestarter, and Silver, Silver Bullet. They are They're so bonkers. Silver Bullet yeah. is particularly wacky. Maximum Overdrive is, again, cocaine-fueled and wonderful. And, and Firestarter is just legit good. Like It's a good story, well told, I think. Yeah. I agree with uh, all of that. But Chad, we are doing something we have never done before in the history of Pick 6 movies next week. That is true. Our next film is going to be a holiday spectacular. It's a bonus episode that is a standalone for the holiday season. Yeah. We wanted to bring Christmas cheer to the masses. And we felt like, look, a lot of people say to us all the time, uh, Chad gets stopped all the time at work about this. I get stopped on the street sometimes and they're like, pick six movies is where I look for, for holiday cheer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have done entire seasons built around the Christmas season. And people are like, look, we are, we've been dealing with Stephen King. We're coming right up against Christmas. What in the ever living fuck? I'm trying to get tinsel and ornaments and yule logs and i want all of that in my life and i need pick six to help so chad what do we have to help them 
in two weeks. We're providing, for the first time in Pick 6 Movies history, a bonus episode to our season, The War on Christmas Movies, where we will be serving up a sequel to National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation in the form of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation 2, Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure for one episode only. Chad, what if, like many listeners, I said to you, what in the fuck is Christmas Vacation 2? Well, the answer to that is, I don't know, because at the time of this recording, I haven't seen it. Yeah, yeah, we're really flying blind on this one. However, just based on the IMDb reviews of this film, it sounds completely in our wheelhouse. Yeah, I'm very excited about this for a number of reasons. Uh, folks, uh, come back in a couple of weeks when you're going to have a Christmas episode of Pick 6 Movies. And then starting up with the new year, we will be starting our 10th season that we have already mapped out. And in fact, we have the majority of the seasons for all of 2020 completely laid out. But if you have a recommendation for a season, we will always call an audible and swap things out. So if you want, send us an email, pick six movies at gmail.com. And that's S I X, not the number six. That's a different podcast. Also, you can just go to Facebook and there's pick six movies there. You can say hello. You can find us there. So drop us a line, like, rate, review, tell a friend, or not. Just do whatever you want to do. That's how it works here. Yeah, we're very casual. <laughs> we're completely casual. We record most of these episodes without pants. But any final thoughts on this season? Hail to the King, baby, where we explored the oeuvre excuse me, a small slice of the oeuvre of motion pictures based on the writings of the incredibly talented and prolific author, Mr. Stephen King. Yeah, it's hard to believe we won't come back for a second helping of Stephen King movies at some point. We probably will. But yeah, you know, I think what I've learned this season is that I still really enjoy Stephen King stuff. Even the bad movies, like even Graveyard Shift is a shitty movie, but it reminds me of the story, which I kind of like. You know, I've been reading Dr. Sleep recently in, in preparation for seeing the film, and I never thought I would enjoy a sequel to The Shining, and I am absolutely adoring a sequel to The Shining. So... Do you think that you'll enjoy a sequel to National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation? If it were called, like, Dr. Shitter? Yeah, but this movie was made for TV, so that's not going to happen. Dr. Crapper? I, that, that's something that the listeners maybe need to know before going into this episode. This is a made-for-TV sequel <laughs> to Christmas Vacation starring the girl from the, the who played Audrey in the original Vacation and Cousin right. Eddie. And that's it for returning cast? Mm, yes. Well, no. Uh, the Eddie's wife is back. Uh-huh. And that's it. Oh, Eric Idle's back, who is in European Vacation. Sure. And Ed Asner is in it. All of this is yeah. making me sad. <laughs> it should. <laughs> when, when I hear Eric Idle is in a made-for-TV sequel to Christmas Vacation, it feels like a grave injustice has been done. So come back. In two weeks' time, and we will be presenting you with a one-time-only bonus episode to a season we did about a year or so ago, all about holiday films, just because we want to make your holiday season a little bit brighter, or worse, depending upon how good or bad this movie is. And it's going to be terrible. Bo? Christmas is coming soon, everyone. <laughs> Come back and see us in two weeks, and we'll have a new episode for you. <laughs>